Oh, good evening. I was uh, just constructing a mobile for my living room. They tell me the four in hand is becoming less popular these days. I like it, though. I'm just old-fashioned, I guess. But so much for fine art. This evening, we have another in our series of plays designed especially for insomniacs. Actually, our stories don't cure you of insomnia, but they do take your mind off your problem by stimulating your imagination and giving you something to think about as you lie there in the dark. Tonight's story will follow after we give this wakefulness test. Yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. We are so close to the end, guys. So close, we can taste it. We can taste it, much like liverwurst uh, at, at a lunch with Ingrid Bergman. We can taste it that close, that close. Um, I want to thank last episode's guest, Ryan Frost, for sitting down for the third and final installment of his Shamley trilogy to talk about the films of Ingrid Bergman. Um, we had a lot of fun reminiscing about Bergman and also talking about her exile from Hollywood and the uh, the injustice of that. Um, and also touching a little bit about Hitchcock's um, first real um, obsessive um, tendencies towards an actress um, and how that kind of uh, blends into what would come later down the line. Um, and uh, once again, uh, we're, we are now down to about five episodes to go. Um, you're going to be hearing some return voices uh, from people like Phil Vecchio, who will be coming down to talk about Family Plot and The Farmer's Wife. Uh, you'll be hearing an episode on Alma Revel uh, with our guest Olivia Carmel. And you'll also be hearing, um, uh, for our final episode, the one and only Adam Roach from The Secret History of Hollywood in an episode that I pre-recorded in March because... I didn't realize it would take me this long to get the series finished because uh, COVID threw in some uh, co some some uh, wrenches in the cogs of our plans. So, but that doesn't mean I I'm not able to go in like Charlie Chaplin and you know work those cogs until they start working again. Um, so and and thus that's why we're ending as late as we are in the year. Uh, but on to today's show. So. Uh, we have talked a lot about Hitchcock through different facets of his career, both in England and in the and in America. Um, we've tended to focus more on the American side of things, primarily because it was the best entry point to start off this series. Obviously, we talked plenty about Psycho, Vertigo, um, Rear Window, uh, the the Cary Grant um, uh, collaborations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but not often were we going into the British era uh, at the beginning of the series. As we plugged along, we've managed to get a lot more of it in there. Um, and, and unfortunately, it, do, it does seem like as we've been an analyzing it, we've uh, managed to also spend a lot of time talking about Hitchcock's earlier missteps, uh, specifically with a close to four hour episode where we talked about three different films from the British period that 
weren't quite up to standard, uh, but showed promise of what was to come down the line. Um, but I thought it would be best to kind of wrap up uh, the British side of Hitchcock's career and specifically um, the involvement of one uh, particular guest uh, with a fun little romp called Young and Innocent from 1937. Uh, this is a film that uh, is light on heavy on the heavier doses of suspense that Hitchcock would provi- provide and has proven to be one of Hitchcock's most British pictures. Um, but it is still a fun and it seems kind of overlooked film um, apart from one very famous sequence that would then later be perfected in a film called Notorious. And we will talk a lot about that and many other things as I welcome back the one and only Marshall Rosales. Hey, y'all. Wow. Wow. Did, did you think when you signed up to talk about Psycho a year ago that you'd still be fucking here? <laughs> Never, never in a million years did I think <clears throat> that I would be invited back four additional times to that. This has been such an amazing ride. Uh, well, you know, and this is the part where you announce it. I'm leaving it in the middle of the episode. Goodbye. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> um, no, but I thank you for, you know, taking the time that you have to watch all these films and to uh, dissect them with me. Um, it, there have been we've had a lot of repeat guests over the course of the series um, the, the some of the of the repeat guests that I've had, some of the most funs I've had have been with Ryan, with Aaron Pendergast, and with you. Um, you you three have been very involved in helping this show plug along as it has. Um, additionally, we've had people like Jack Hanley and um, Undead Matt from Punk Rock Horror Podcast who have come back to contribute further. But you guys have definitely been a heavy part of it, um, and I and I do thank you for coming down as often as you have um whether be whether in person or virtually as of late <laughs> to uh talk about these uh th- these these films of the past that have uh, seemed to have uh, engaged a lot of response from people um in various different forms um but yeah, 100% my pleasure yeah. um i mean I, I it's it's i think that through this uh involvement with this amazing podcast i think i've probably maybe seen like five or six times the number of Hitchcock's films than I did beforehand. So it's, uh, it's, it's probably true to say that when I started a year ago, uh, I was young and innocent of my, uh, Hitchcock exposure. And now and, you uh, have so vertigo. it's only appropriate that this is our last uh, <laughs> film that we're covering. You were young and innocent. Anyway. Yeah. It's, it's actually <laughs> interesting that, you bring up the term young and innocent when it comes to your relationship with Hitchcock prior to the podcast, because the title itself refers to the main characters being both young and innocent. You know, it's, it's, it's a little, this movie's a little on the nose, but in a great way, I I think I would argue in a great way. Um, Yeah. I think it's on a nose. I'm not sure it's on the nose because I think some, some aspects of it are a little tough to track. Uh, and, and are a little skewed, but I would agree that it's on a nose. Uh, I'm I'm just not sure which one. Well, we will, we'll dive into it as we, um, (laughs) contemplate, um, the, the, the legacy of the film, because it's a film that I do feel is, uh, respected, uh, mainly in film people circles, but it is not, um, it's not talked about as much compared to some other films that, uh, are a little bit more, exciting or heavy on the thematic tone but this is a nice fun affair that 
uh, arguably kind of like a to catch a thief to a certain respect is just a, a a blast to watch in a certain respect and just it's 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 entertainment uh to kind of turn your brain off a little bit which is which is always a fun th- a fun time regardless um it's not like number 17 where you have to not only shut your brain off but remove your brain completely so um, right um but before we uh jump in i I did want to ask you now that you are five episodes into this thing and you've uh reflected on this as a as a film as a film goer and a film lover and a filmmaker um as you've watched these different hitchcock movies have what has been your biggest takeaway over the course of this year as you've kept coming back um in terms of whether it's hitchcock's legacy or just the films we've been sitting down to watch um, I think that it's, that's a phenomenal question. Um, I, I have to tell you, Zach, I have found it extremely inspiring, especially, you know, being able to focus on, um, not only, um, Hitchcock's early films, but also his like quote unquote failures mm-hmm. as, uh, in the times that we've, in the podcast we've recorded together. Yeah. Um, is I think that a big takeaway that I have is that um, it is really, really important to um, strive to fail early. Hmm. Um, And that you can, like in, in all of his films, it was relatively clear that Hitchcock had a vision and had a thing that he was going for. And either early in his career didn't exactly know how to articulate it to execute it or didn't have the control that he would earn later to be able to execute it um, or was working with people who had equal standing with him in terms of power or greater in some cases and so therefore wasn't able to execute it. But regardless, he knew that he wanted to make a thing work. And so he, he, he knew that he had a thing that he wanted to make work and so he would um kind of take a swing at it again and again and again until you build years later to the films that are in all of the you know hitchcock's box sets and are the immediate films that everyone thinks of whenever you say hitchcock yeah um so i think that 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 really has been um an interesting process for me to like sit down and watch Hitchcock movies that are not wholly enjoyable through to through, like, you know, from, from start to, to finish the same way that all of the early, you know, my early exposure, my first exposure to Hitchcock was because I was watching his greats and the, the classics and, and things like that. So, so to be able yeah. to go back and kind of see that, that process in the early days, um, was really kind of neat. And also just in some ways, like Hitchcock getting, getting in the way of himself. You know, I think that, um, looking at comparing his early films to his later films, I think that he really, his early films have a lot more of a sparkle in their eye in terms of the treatment of the humor. I I find, Mm. um, it's a little bit more like, we're going to stop the movie to make a joke and now we're going to continue the movie and then we're going to stop the movie again to make a joke. Um, and as he evolved as a filmmaker, he was able to make that 
transition much more smoothly and then weave the weave the humor into the character and the story as a part of just like the natural way that things played out as opposed to yeah. being so blatantly look it's a joke um or look it's a pratfall or or whatever it is so it, it's um, more blended into the the story itself and works appropriately for the characters yeah yeah and it, it really is i mean especially when you look at like the timeline of how long he he made films it you you really kind of get to see the the whole you know the ten thousand hours sort of taking form mm-hmm. of like oh yeah so he was all, all always a master and always had a vision he just didn't have the hours under him for experience of actually being able to execute what he was wanting to do in a nuanced and, and precise way but then when you look at him later on it's like oh he's going for the same thing it's just now he can do it relatively you know effortless or at least make it look effortless it's it's funny that you bring that up because there's an interview that there's a bunch of interviews clips of interviews he did with peter bogdanovich and on it peter bogdanovich um brought up the notion that there are critics who felt that his american work was never as good as his british work and he in peter bogdanovich's wonderful way he said to me that sounds asinine and then Hitchcock had agreed with him in this part of the interview to the respect that, like, he felt that he was able to learn more and what he learned he had put into those American films. So, like, it's interesting for how much we laud the British period, and it is, and it does deserve to be lauded um, with with the many different films we've discussed, whether it's The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, um, even into this film, which is, again, a little bit more lighter, lighter on its feet. Um, or sabotage, you know, the infamous film where I killed that fucking kid. Um, the, the 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 tendency is to say, you know, that you know these ones are more respectable, and the the later American films are a little bit more popcorn fare, with a few that have risen to high art. Um, Vertigo being the, the the top example of that. But what's interesting as you research Hitchcock, everybody has their own opinion on what the classics are. Nobody, there are consensus answers, but nobody has the same train of thought when it comes to what their favorite is or why it's their favorite or what the best period is. And it's funny, like, uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of more and drawn a little bit more toward the later American period that starts in the fifties and goes into the seventies. Um, um, and Ryan, as I've talked with him, he has been a more fan of the 40s. So that middle period where he's just coming off the boat of Amer- to America and making films like Rebecca, Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt, stuff like that. So it's interesting how it not, not everybody has the same inclinations. Like, And I like the British period in a certain section of it, primarily with the sound films, with the exception of stuff like The Lodger and um, uh, I'm actually I, I'm I like the um, downfall a lot. Um, as a as a film, it's a it's a film that we haven't really talked about. We might do it in a sh- supplements episode, but it's on the larger criterion, and it's it's interesting. It's not, it's it's not really a sus- it's not strictly a suspense film, but it but it has a bunch of merit behind it in terms of watching how he was able to make even a simple story work. Um, so there's there's no clear answer to any of it, um, except of course that Topaz is the best of all of them that you've discussed. Isn't that isn't that correct, Marshall? It's it's mm-hmm. it sure is. <laughs> it's the best one. You it's lack Topaz. Sure. Yep. Admit it. Admit it. <laughs> all thirteen hours of it is his yes, best exactly. One. It it's the best mini series of all time since John Adams, and it came out before of John how you Adams. get that from strange? the parking lot up to the sixth floor. That's the mini series. <laughs> 
HBO should just take Topaz uh, and just re-release it unedited completely as an assembly cut, and they can get another Emmy. <laughs> um, exactly. But we're here. We're not here to talk about Topaz, uh, much to Marshall's delight. We're here to talk about Young and Innocent. Um, once again, from from 1937, Young and Innocent is a film that, as described up front, is not heavy on the thematic. But what's interesting about the film is is that it 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 assembles not only what he's established up to this point in British cinema, but it's also assembling the uh, th- some things that will come further down the line, whether it's through the visual schemes, um, different tropes that he would then perfect in the American period. Um, and also further developing certain parts of the humor. And we can, we'll definitely get into elements of that as we go along. Um, but we'll get these credits right out of the way. Uh, young and Innocent, directed by me, a young and innocent Alfred Hitchcock. Not, nothing had gone wrong yet. Um, produced by uh, produced by Edward Black for um, uh, Re- Gamo Film Company and distributed by General Film Distribution. And there's a, And the reason I bring that up is that um the at this point gamo uh british had ceased to become a production company and had ended up becoming a, strictly a distribution company and hitchcock went over to gainsborough and then this film was uh basically created by gainsborough and gamo film company the Ga- gainsborough and gamo were uh cooperating companies um and the the formation of Gainsborough by Ma- Michael Balkin um, in 1924 uh, kind of sets the stage for Hitchcock's career initially in London. Um, and uh, Gainsborough ended up essentially cementing Hitchcock's legacy um, in, a, in a way that arguably the reason we know a lot of uh, these earlier masterpieces is because Gainsborough had given him the freedom to do these early experiments like The Lodger, even though the release of that film proved contentious because there was a notion that it should never be released because they didn't think it was worth releasing. Um, but uh, Gamo was, as I said, it was a French subsidiary of British, uh, a French Gamo film company, um, and it became... Um, uh, an independent of that parent company in 1922. Um, and then basically at a certain point, it ceases production uh, at its, uh, 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 at its uh, initial studios um, at Islington uh, um, or at Lime Grove, and then basically becomes uh, a different thing. So like the, the companies are kind of tied up in all general directions, but at this time, as Hitchcock is moving over to Gainsborough to make this film, he brings along, obviously, Alma and his assistant, Joe Harrison, and he brings over initially Charles Bennett. Uh, Charles Bennett, who was a frequent collaborator of Hitchcock's, um, had basically been offered a large sum of money by Universal uh, to be lured away. And before he took that offer, he worked on basically fleshing out the story for what would become Young and Innocent. It's based on a novel called A Shilling for Candles by Josephine Tay. Um, and it's the second... Very loosely. What was that? Oh, very loosely, yes. And we'll, and before we reason out why, uh, it's the second... It, it, it's one of the... It's the second of five stories involving an inspector named Alan Grant. Um, and the 
thing about this film is is that Alan Grant, uh, the this inspector character Alan Grant, is basically removed because um, because the whole novel is a whodunit who that is basically centered around that Scotland Yard inspector, and the character yes, he, is basically he's not there in this movie. Because no, he had to go to Isle Number. Yeah, exactly. Isle Nubar. Yes, he's exactly. <laughs> he had to go with Ellie Sadler and Doctor Ian Malcolm to that crazy old man's island, where he, everybody told him, Marshall, that that was a bad fucking idea. And of course, the old man didn't listen. He 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 said, No, 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 no. I'm going to make dinosaurs, and then I'm going to make Gandhi, and then I'm going to make Chaplin. Like he. This old man needs to be stopped. Somebody stop John Hammond. I know the actor's dead, but we still need to stop John Hammond. Um, actually, side tangent for a second. There was news of a uh, of a mysterious egg that is purported to be millions of years old discovered. And my first reaction was to post a picture of Alan Grant and go, somewhere out there, a young Richard Attenborough gets inspired. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> which followed with a fun conversation with my friend Rick, who does not listen to podcasts, but uh, it basically led to another revelation of uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm's shirtless scene in Jurassic Park. Oh, beautiful. Um, but anyway, yeah, Alan Grant went to the dino land, and um, this, there was a storyline in this novel uh, involving our lead characters in the movie um, that was initially a subplot, and then they basically just, Hitchcock and Charles Bennett just went like, no, 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 like, this Alan Grant character is is a bunch of nonsense. Like he's better at scaring children at a dig site. These two are much more interesting for my purposes. Um, and so basically, the story is fleshed out to essentially be the story of these two young, this one a young woman and an innocent man uh, trying to clear the innocent man's name. Um, and I, I'll say that it's. Uh, it's interesting how this film, despite it leaning on some more comedic and romantic elements, still manages to have its own little heft of suspense. It's like I said, it's super light, but it's there. Um, and it, it's using the same techniques and tropes that Hitchcock um, became known and famous for, not the least of which are, uh, this movie is a MacGuffin dream, if you really want to think about it, because the MacGuffin mm. is very like usually the MacGuffin in a Hitchcock movie is mentioned a lot, but not like so leaned into. And this one, the MacGuffin, which is um, a, uh, uh, a sorry, raincoat. Yeah, the rain. Well, it's the it's not just the raincoat. <laughs> it's the belt in the raincoat. <laughs> it's the belt yeah. specifically. It's yeah. I think I we'll get we'll get into this as as we discuss the plot more. But I think that the the suspense is there on paper. Yeah. Um, but I do not feel that it is there uh, in terms of the atmosphere of the film or like woven into the craft of the, of the storytelling. And, it, and, and I, I actually found it extremely undercut by the comedy. Um, which could, which it, is very, like, which is very fair because it does, it does lean into the romance element of it. And therefore there is a lot spilling over in terms of the comedic, to complement that when it is mm -hmm. suspenseful it's there's there's an obvious point where it becomes sus suspenseful um i'd argue and it's also involved in one of the more cinematic elements of the movie itself um but 
it, it would be best to also mention this is there's a lot of there's a bunch of production info on this film, not the least of which we have a cast of seemingly people that for the most part had not really would not go to work for work on work on with Hitchcock afterwards. But um, actually, well, b before you get to the cast, I just did want to touch on some other people that had a hand in the writing um, yeah. is, um, yeah, obviously, Charles Bennett, you mentioned a lot of collaborations with uh, Hitchcock, mm -hmm. Man Who Knew Too Much, 39 Steps, Foreign Correspondent. Um, and then also Edwin Greenwood was involved. Yeah. Um, and Anthony and, Armstrong. Yeah. And actually, this was Edwin Greenwood's last credit. Yep. Um, film. He died when he was 44, yep. um, sadly. Um, and then Anthony Armstrong, yeah, also involved in the story structure, it looks like. Uh, he didn't look like he went on to do much of prominence. He did do one episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, so they continue to work together at some point in the future. Yeah, well, Hitchcock, um, and Hitchcock would bring people back um, on more than one occasion. He even brought back Joseph Cotton after he called under Capricorn under Crappy Corn, so. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, is this is a very, very childish thing to do. Um, yes. But and then yeah. also, an interesting note, there's also Gerald uh, Savory, I believe. Yeah, um, he did dialogue touch on it, yeah. Dialogue. This was his first film credit. It looks like he had done some plays before this, but uh, this was his first film credit, yep. which was kind of cool. And we're, and with Edward Greenwood, with this being his last film, it would it be good to point into it is that he also was a was a a very integral part of the man who knew too much. Um, he worked on a, a series of films up until obviously this is the last thing that he does, um, but he was also a director. Um, primarily of shorts, um, up until 1929, when he 28 and 29, when he starts doing um, features, um, and it it seems like I, I've talked about how as he gets towards the end, he starts getting some of his best stuff out of it, that, and I still stand by this as being one of the best, um, but it's in a different, but the, but it does different things, but it's still utilizing the talents of the people that he had worked with and gained trust with over the years in terms of the writers that he worked with, the technicians that he worked with. Um, and Joan Harrison, who we haven't talked a lot about yet, um, apart from her being Hitchcock's assistant that would go on to be a producer. One of the things she was doing was supervising the script on this film um, while Alma worked on continuity. So like she, she, she kind of helped shape this film as well. So this was um, actually kind of like a five writer job on this film um, between everybody um, involved. And in addition to Joan Harrison, who goes uncredited. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers involved in it. And I think that what's interesting is that in spite of how many layers are in there and in spite how much, Hitchcock had a lot of enthusiasm in the pre-production, and then he, uh, according to all reports, became very bored <laughs> as filming commenced. And based on the way we've been talking about how Hitchcock preferred the pre-production, and then he would be like, okay, it's ready to shoot, so it's just point and shoot at this point. This seems to be like a case where it was like, no, this like was really boring him. There were reports from cast members saying that he was found taking naps in between takes. Um, and during takes, so like it was nappy time for Hitchcock. So, oh, well, I uh, I'm a little uh, embarrassed to say that I was then channeling Hitchcock as I was watching it, <laughs> <laughs> oh. because I may have had to uh, 
pause and wake up and rewind uh, uh, several times throughout watching this film uh, to we, splash some water on. We on may have face. a topaz situation on our hands then, because I, uh, I, I, I'm very fond of the, the, the silliness of this movie. It's, it's, it's such frivolity, but it's, but it's better than what we dis- For my money, it's better than what we discussed in the three films that we discussed your, on your last episode. So that's where I'm kind of like really out to defend the film <laughs> i guess but um yeah i'll, I'll probably I'll, I'll best be able to kind of jump into my um my criticisms of the film once we get through the plot yeah. it's kind of best to be able to kind of go back and grab from that standpoint exactly um, and but, but yeah we'll we'll get into it yeah and uh, but we'll we'll do the cast here because it, it there's some yes. there's some good names to take note of um, we have uh, Derek DeMarney playing uh, Robert Tisdall. We have Percy Marmont. We have Edward Rigby, Mary Claire, John Longden, who is uh, a returning Hitchcock player who was in things like The Skin Game and Juno and the Paycock. Um, George Cousin, Basil Radford, uh, Pamela Carm, George Merritt, J.H. Roberts, Jerry Verno, H.F. Maltby, John Miller, Sid Crossley, Torrin Thatcher, Anna Cronstam, and Bill Shine, um, and uh, by and we're, there's other actors in there that are uncredited that thankfully IMDb has identified, and we'll 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 touch on them as we can go along. Um, now but you said no, Derek DeMarney was was playing who? I'm sorry, the, uh, Robert Tisdall, um, our our uh, lead. Oh our, no. I'm sorry. I think you mean Beechcroft Manning Tree. Yes, yes, yes. That is a name that he has, and we will talk about it. <laughs> Beechcroft Manning Tree. God, that 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 is a great name, and we're going to get to it. Um, but it I didn't even um, mention. Also, the... I would like to very sadly say that there is no credit for Towser the dog. No, who there plays isn't. An integral we'll, part in the plot. No but, credit. We'll, for, but we'll talk Towser. about my criticisms criticisms of Towser the dog because this dog thinks he's the shit, and no dog is the shit unless his name is Asta, and he's hanging out with Nick and Nora Charles solving mysteries. So, <laughs> um, but uh, but he is a fine dog. Um, but I didn't even mention the girl who was young, which was the U.S. Um, the U.S. title of this film was The Girl Was Young. Uh, and the girl I speak of playing Erica Bergon is Nova Pilbum. Nova Pilbum was the little girl in The First Man Who Knew Too Much as the girl who gets kidnapped before they remade the film um, with with a certain actor who's made many appearances on this show. Um, and in that movie, his character is father to a very annoying little boy. Um, it's interesting because we're going to talk a lot about annoying children in this movie as well. <laughs> um, but we'll, let's go ahead and jump into this plot, Marshall, as we are off to do on this show. Um, we All open right. up, we, we open up on a stormy night and a, and a declaration of fury. Christine. Christine. It, it, oh my God. It actually, I love the way it opens on that. Like for for a movie of that era to just end, to open in on that on that dialogue and just like really thrust yourself into the argument. We don't need any real setup. The dialogue, while expositionary, I do feel is like it's very quick. Like it's not trying to bog you down. Like this scene moves in and out really quick. And we see Christine Clay, played by Pamela Carm, uh, in a heated argument. Um, with her ex-husband Guy, played by George Curzon, um, <laughs> they go into basically their whole history within a few sentences about how she was a she's a she's a 
she was an actress who went went to work for the screen and suddenly became disinterested in her husband and then started flirting around with chorus boys and every other person you could think of and this guy th- this guy named guy uh will not accept her reno divorce <laughs> as is mentioned in the dialogue of this movie um um and he's accusing her of having an affair within the proceedings of this divorce she slaps the multiple shit multiple affairs yeah no multi- yeah she he's he's basically convinced that she is uh n- like completely this unsafe. is robin singing he any grounds <laughs> he would have for success in a divorce court like <laughs> you know um and she she slaps the shit out of him as a result of those accusations um in in one of the more classiest slap sequences you'll ever see in a movie like i, I usually you get one good smack um, uh, whether, you know, it's a guy smacking a girl or a girl smacking a guy, like vice of whatever the case may be. Usually it's one slap and you're done. No, she goes smack, 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 smack. It's, it's verging on three stooges territory here. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a the, full on assault. Yeah. The only, the only difference is, is that nobody goes, why you come here? So he, um, she, and he leaves and. His as he's as he leaves and he's left outside, his eyes start to twitch. Yes, that, he storms out to the balcony to brood yep, and twitch. Yep, and now and now the twitching may not sound important, but it will be important. It will be important. Um, but then the next morning, we're out on the beach. Uh, there's a quick insert shot of some seagulls, and Hitchcock looks at that and goes, "Hmm, I may make a movie about those later, later, yeah. later." I'm, I'm not uh, bored by this one shot. I'll make a whole movie about it. No, 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 no. I, I, I did this to you. See, you guys think that I just come up with ideas like out of nowhere, um, like like they just th- these I, opportunities just drop in my lap on accident. No, they're all pre-planned. Like I built the Hitchcock universe to end at a certain point, and I, I, I can't tell you how important it was to have this shot of this bird these birds flying because i wanted you all to know that someday there will be a movie about birds the end <laughs> so but it's a, but it, it it is a cool scene that kind of like it very well the music's well orchestrated and cues us into the fact that christine is dead and her body washes ashore, which, by the way, it, it, it was interesting to watch her body flo- flowing ashore because it, it, I don't know if they used a dummy in the in the water for some of the initial shots, but it looks like her body's actually getting rocked back and forth and that they kind of choreographed that pretty well. Like, it's... yeah, I, no, I don't think it was a dummy. I think um, I think, yeah, it was it was shot really shot really well. And it's actually um quite out of place i would say in a hitchcock film in terms of we actually brought a camera outside to an outdoor location yeah. and we don't have actors running on a a sand covered stage with a rear projection behind them for the beach that that entire sequence uh was actually played out in a little cove um on a beach yeah. which is kind of cool yes to see. and then the re- what's interesting though is that the remaining scenes all take place inside studio. They're not. This is one. This is one of the few shots that is shot outside, because then mm-hmm. everything else is done with matte painting afterwards. None of the main characters leave a studio really, <laughs> like, which 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 is typical of the era. But this in particular is interesting for Hitchcock because he has been noted that he doesn't like the outdoors. I I don't fucking like it. Um, so for him to yeah, go I mean, out and get that shot, you know, pretty cool. And it could have been second unit for all we know, cause it's not like they didn't have second unit back then. Um, yeah. 
Um, well, they had um, um, Derek there, right? Yeah. Yep. We do have we do have Derek um, like uh, up on the cliff. Um, so he's walking by. <laughs> yeah. And dude, Robert Tisdale walking by, sees a dead body, runs down, knows who it is. Yep. He's notices and runs oh, off to go get help. Yep. It's like, oh, that's that. It's that lady. And then, she, and then, two women arrive as they see him running away, and then the police are called in. He comes back, and the women point and say he must have done it. And it's they give their statement about how they saw him running away from the scene. He tries to explain that he was trying to go out and get help after he saw her washed ashore, and it's. It doesn't look good for him on first impression alone because you're looking at it and just like there's a there's a there's a moment where the two young women's suspicions aren't out of merit based on what they're seeing, but clearly you know he's being set up or being falsely accused. Um, yeah, there's there's a uh, there's some pretty strange weird weak logic and lack of questioning going on to kind of get us in to thrust us into the plot to kind of set that up. I think that there's a little bit around if, if he was going to run for help, then how did the women get police there before he did um, is definitely a question I would have asked if I was the inspector or the, the police officer there um, on board. But also I think that um, guy being present is a pretty loose connection to a dead body washing up on the shore. You, you know, I, you know. Normally, I would agree with you, Marshall, on this, and I do, I do generally agree with you on this logic. But no, having seen the Paradise Lost documentaries, I'm not surprised if a law enforcement officer decides to just <laughs> to get to move along in questioning and just get somebody in jail. So, um. yeah. well, I also question their ability to identify him from the back as he's running away at a distance as well as why no one thought to bring up the defense of why would I come back? Yeah, exactly. And, and before, and before we even, before we jump into that, I will point out that as things do wash ashore, um, an overcoat belt does wash up as well. And so again, we're lying into that MacGuffin and, and I mean, it's, it's identifying what clearly would have been used to murder her. Um, and it also puts, it, it technically puts Robert in an awkward position because as he's later brought in for questioning, um, the overcoat belt um, becomes our key point of trying to figure out if Robert is innocent. Um, yes. And uh, by, yes, by, the police officer on the scene is able to see without touching her that she didn't in fact drown, that she was strangled and that she was just strangled very recently. Yes. And so if he was just here, if Robert was running away very recently, then he must have been the one to strangle her. Yeah. And also in a clearly amazing uh, line of defense, he says, oh, yeah, I have a raincoat and uh, it has a belt. Yeah, exactly. And and, and <laughs> it should be established as he's as he's brought in for questioning, like we do get that montage of newspapers. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, I, man. I, I brought I, I, I want to bring this up because I, I sometimes I like looking at these old um uh, creations of newspapers for film 
because they clearly try to create it so that their headline fits within the aesthetic of an actual paper, right? And the one that I love the most, the headline that I saw off to the side is, he sold a refrigerator, and that's it. I want to know what happened to the guy who sold the refrigerator, Marshall. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not that I don't want to know what happened to Christine Clay, but he sold a refrigerator, but, but this isn't an advertisement. This is a headline. What the fuck happened after he sold that refrigerator? <laughs> Um, so that was uh, – th- it's interesting how suddenly the news breaks out pretty quickly. So we are dealing with an accelerated timeline at that point. Um, and he gets questioned overnight, um, and the, it's brought up within that defense that he had a coat, but he uh, – he it was stolen from him. And he doesn't remember when, but he knows that he went to a um, a petrol station to get cigarettes, and when he came out – the coat was gone and that it was outside of Tom's hat, um, which is the, the, the dining uh, section of this fill up station. And he doesn't know where it is. So he doesn't have his alibi. Essentially his alibi is the raincoat with the overcoat belt in it. So, um, yeah, which, which took, took a bit the, the, I will say, and I don't, I don't know if it was the particular editing I did in doing research on this film, have found that apparently there are several different edits of the film um, prior to its restoration that They're, get kind yep. of bad. Um, and I did not watch the Criterion um, uh, restored version, so this this may be accounting for that. But the, oh. the dialogue is very quick, very overlapping. Yeah, really quickly, what choppy. version did you watch? Um, it was, I think, there was a... a uh, a watercolor mark that would come up on the image from time to time from a, I think Synapse Corporation. <laughs> um, so it was one of the companies that sort of snatched up some print of it when it hit um, public domain. Yes, yes, from Bootleg Bill and his <laughs> yeah. his dastardly um, deeds in film distribution. <laughs> um, but but yeah, there's the 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 looseness of the of the accusation was a little bit tough for me to sort of like catch back up with about just being like, I guess this is the ride that we're on. So I'm just going to sit back and go with it. But it was just sort of like some random belt is also on the shore. And yeah. I understand the connection if she's been strangled. Well, um, the connection will that be... ends up being the case. Yeah. The but connection, then the I fact think... that, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. Go, no, I was going to say the connection to that belt will, will technically become a little bit clearer by the end, but, um... but I mean about like why it's such a, why it's so important that he find the coat is that it's like I had a coat that had a belt, but there's no connection with this belt to him or to his coat and why him proving like it's, it's just, it, it it's like, um, I don't know. And, and maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm not, maybe I'm definitely approaching it from a modern, like forensic police investigation standpoint about just being like, I can't think of much more of a loose evidence evidence evidentiary chain in terms of like this guy freely offered that he had a raincoat and we're assuming that the raincoat had a belt and that because we can't find it he much he must have ditched the raincoat but not the belt and he was caught red-handed with the dead body in the middle of the day on a beach like it just it it again there's a, a certain point where i just like turned that part of me off <laughs> um, but, but it took a minute or two. Well, you took off your CSI hat and you put on your Robert Stack and unsolved mysteries hat. And you said to me- yourself, maybe I can solve the mystery. <laughs> um, but 
no, I mean, and the key part of this, of him finding the coat, is is that if he finds the coat and the belt's still there, it means that that could not be his belt at the scene. So but that and and that is like to me is like it from a from a prosecutorial standpoint. <laughs> there's actually nothing connecting the belt with him, and from a defense standpoint, even or I guess also from a no, I'm sorry. From a defense standpoint, there's nothing connecting the belt to him. From a prosecutorial standpoint, him proving that he found his coat with the belt still intact does nothing to say that, so therefore it was impossible for you to get another belt and strangle her with that Do you, is, is bonkers to me. So you so you think that if uh, Sam, what, let's say Sam Watterson from Law & Order is handling this investigation, <laughs> you think it might be a little bit clearer? <laughs> um... I think Jack yeah, McCoy can get it done. <laughs> well, I, I think that just like, you know, as you, you brilliantly called it out as, as a, a, a giant capital M MacGuffin. And it just seems like such a weak MacGuffin to me, given, given what's at stake here. That it's just like, oh, great, you found your coat, it has a belt. So now prove that you didn't get another belt and strangle her with it. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's... like, oh, so, and, and in the meantime, to find the coat to see if it had a belt in it. You also escaped a courtroom and went on the lam and quote unquote kidnapped a woman and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just, it, it, the, the, the plot setup was very loose to me. Yeah. Once I got over that, then the, I could continue on with the film. It, it, you know, what's funny as I noticed as we're going to go along, I, I kind of realized that, you know, within the production note that Hitchcock kind of lost interest at a certain point after the, uh, um, the the pre-production of the film you know it's interesting is that like because everything is set up as such that it almost seems like it's that autopilot we talked about um in our second episode together when we talked about uh torn curtain and um topaz but mm -hmm. what's interesting about this particular autopilot is that because it's so early on it's still enjoyable and it's so like if we're going chronologically it, it there's still a charm to it that say stuff like Topaz obviously does not have um, and then and thus leaves Topaz in that weird you know pickle that it finds itself in as a legacy of a, of a film but um, but the it, it the 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 MacGuffin itself is very transparent and so like I it's almost I don't want to say Hitch is being self-aware but it feels like you could read it that way if you wanted to I think that would be stretching things a bit but it seems like it can't be accidental that it's this obvious because he hasn't really leaned into it before this and he doesn't really tend to lean too hard on the MacGuffin afterwards. So, well, I think it, I think it speaks a little bit to the adaptation is what I would blame a little bit. Um, because the, the, the part of the original novel that essentially is this film is just the first third of the novel. It's very similar setup. Actress washes ashore. They think a guy did it. Uh, his innocence is tied to this belt, and so then he escapes and goes on the hunt for the for the coat with uh, with the belt, and they find it with the belt. And then yeah. that part of the plot is over. And then the inspector, who's the main character of the book, just goes on to continue to look for the actual murderer. So I think that the, the it was a little bit of a struggle in the in the adaptation to to divorce the importance of the coat 
when that was the whole reason for the subplot in the novel was this connection to the coat. And it ended up being as loose in the novel as it actually would be in real life but yeah. because they decided to have that story encompass their entire film meant that by maintaining the importance of the coat, it, it gave this sort of like weak foundation to the MacGuffin and the thing that they were after. You know, you, you know, here's actually, you bring up a very good point and I, and I have a, th- I have a theory I want to pitch to you. Hear me, hear me out on my uh, wild out and crazy theory. Um, Go for it. So when we talked about Secret Agent on the last episode you were on, we talked about how he was adapting previous source material um, in a series of novels about a secret agent. And it's almost like he kind of learned from that film, well, adapting these stories about established characters in detective series doesn't really work for me, but this first third is interesting. So when he removes the Alan Grant character from this story into this story that clearly interests him more, he's also finding himself in a difficult position of how to expand it so that it's cohesive. Um, Oh yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the theme of my five episodes is you can just call them the protagonist problem saga. Um, and and this is definitely that, that I think that in the novel, your protagonist obviously is the thrust of this detective who's given this case to solve. Um, when you take the detective out of this story and merge that, um, the police officer in charge of the investigation into your uh, female lead's f- father becomes, that kind of becomes the, the constable character. Um, yeah. And... Um, yeah, Constable. What is their last name? I Constable Con, Con, Constable Burgon. Yes, that's it. Um, by uh, played by Percy Marmont. Yeah. Um, um, you have a character who is in charge of the investigation, who is turned into a tertiary character, and because you have the person who is accused of the character, uh, are accused of the the crime. Yeah. Um, is essentially the main character and who is most affected by the plot. But there is this really strange struggle that is going on between the character of Robert Tisdale and the character of Erica Bernoin uh, about who is actually the protagonist and who's actually driving um, the story. Because from an extent, it is Robert because he escapes and then goes on the hunt for this jacket but on the other hand, on the other hand, he's just sort of like placed into the situation, and then she's the one who's is sort of getting. She's driving the story through the entire second act. Yeah, and um, by and by she, we should reveal her now, the girl, the innocent, whereas Robert is the young. Uh, well, no, he, he no, Robert's the young. Robert's the innocent. We'll meet the young. The one and only. Yeah, I think. Er- yeah, I mean, that's also uh, regardless of what title you want to go with, the British title of Young and Innocent or the U.S. title, The Girl Was Young. It's mm-hmm. a, an abysmal title um, hmm. because it like the the boys that Christine, the, the woman who's murdered, is accused of sleeping around with are so explicitly pointed out as being young boys. Yeah, that she's been sleeping around with young boys, and that's what her ex-husband is accusing her of, or her husband is accusing her of. Yeah, and then along comes this guy who's accused of killing her, who has a past history with her. So 
he is it's the movie the, the script and the dialogue has been like oh well is he the young yeah but he's also innocent and then well then who is this girl and then you look and you find that well the the girl was young was the US title yeah. which somehow places her as the main character even though she's just sort of wrapped up in the plot it's definitely yeah again my my <laughs> my entrance to, to most story analyzing is always who's the protagonist and what's on the line what, and this movie makes it hard what's interesting about how this plays out and you're right not only does he know her prior um, and but she had left him twelve hundred pounds in her will, so which leads right, him to which, faint. And when he I did faint, some research, which yeah. is bonkers, twelve hundred pounds in thirty seven when this movie was made, um, is just about a million dollars. Yipers, man. Yeah. Ooh. So when they say, "Oh, there's our motive," and that's why that's so important. Um, I'm uh, sitting yeah, rich, I, baby. I did some Woo. backwards math. <laughs> yeah, it's just under a million dollars. Yipes! That is uh, that is a chunk of change, my friend. It's every time I, every, it, it, it's kind of easier for us to conceive it in American dollars, but like even adding in the pounded, the pound and whatnot, and what British, the value of the pound would have been at the time. Like, I, I mean, anytime I hear somebody say like, you know, it'll cost about a hundred dollars in anything from the nineteen thirties and forties, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a big chunk of fucking money. <laughs> like, like that ain't that ain't short change, my friend. Um, yes. And, and, and in this, fact, so this, sort of catching us up into the plot where our, our main character gets assigned this ridiculous barrister. Um, <laughs> oh, well, of, bef- of, well, but before that, he faints. He faints at the, at the news of finding out that he has received oh, 1,200 yes. pounds. And as, <laughs> as he faints, it just so happens that the constable's daughter, Erica, played by Nova Pilbaum, enters and recover, helps him recover uh, from from techniques that she learned um, being around the different police officers and also her time with a boxer. So like, <laughs> so she's, uh, she's, she's established right away as being able to hold her own in her own way. Um, what I, what I find interesting about Erica as a character, as we're going to find out through, like, even though she may not be the driving force of the plot, we spend a lot of time with her in a way that I find interesting for Hitchcock in this era. Like he spends, he spends more time with her in this movie than he does with his female protagonists in movies prior. Um, it, yeah, like, she's a phenomenal to, character. I yeah, really, what, really like. Um, yeah. What, Nova. What, now, when it comes to like his female characters prior to this, they are important and they are established and they are dissected, but. This one seems like, for whatever reason, it feels like the attention is very focused. Part of it might be that this is Nova Pilbaum's first big romantic role um, after she had turned 18. So, like, there's also another angle of, like, the star of the man who knew too much is now, you know, an adult. And therefore, you know, she's going to become a full, full-blossomed full actress. So there she wasn't might... quite, quite 18 yet. She was 17 when they made this. 17, that's right. Sorry, my bad. So, but she's... So, basically, they're... There's almost a position. It almost feels like it's a star vehicle for her in a certain sense, even though, you know, obviously there are other factors involved into why Hitchcock would want to do it. But it seems like this kind of happens on like as a as a happenstance. Um, And as a result, he's clearly more interested in the female character to begin with as he plans, because we spend a lot of time with her and also her her emotional wrestling with what she's doing and who she's gotten tangled up with as we go along. Um, 
but she helps him recover. And then uh, Robert is, as you said, given incompetent law counsel <laughs> in the form of a man who can't remember where his fucking glasses are. <laughs> like, yes. But but uh, the thing I was going to bring up regarding the money is Robert hands over two pounds, which, um, yeah. again, in 1937 is the equivalent of about $150. Jesus Christ. So... That's so yeah so it's I don't know it's this weird and and again you know I think that one of the one of the criticisms that I have of the film is is this weird sort of balance that they're playing with Robert Tisdale um or Tisdale um is uh is that he's sort of presented as this like down on his luck uh vagabond mm-hmm. who doesn't have much money to his name but also like carrying 150 bucks in cash is a little like it that to me contrasts with him giving his last three shillings to pay for gas now knowing how much that was you know like watching the movie i was like oh yeah two bucks okay i guess that's that's all the money he has it's not that much and um (laughs) this uh lawyer is so cheap that he's just gonna kind of accept whatever but once i did the the pound and uh inflation conversion i was like oh he had 150 bucks in his pocket Okay, well that that changes things I think a little bit for he, me. He, but again, it... like you said, Hitchcock was more interested in the Nova character because we don't really know much about Robert at all. You know, I I I can describe Robert as a character uh because you you brought up a beautiful word called vagabond and it comes from a song by Rudy Valley and I will now sing for the first and only time on this show. Oh, I'm just a vagabond lover in search of a sweetheart at sea cuz he does find a sweetheart at sea. Everybody, I I connected Rudy Valley to Hitchcock. Thank you very much. We're done with this fucking show. Good night everybody. Um but no, he um like it, it's interesting though. It, it, I guess if anything it does it it shows that he's more willing to risk everything to prove his innocence because you don't want to be convicted of murder no matter who no matter where you come from or who your what your social status is or uh, anything like that it, it just it, it you know it it's scary but you know again it, it's interesting how he is willing to part with things um and it's interesting also to the fact of when we get to that gas scene but we have to talk about one of the greatest escapes ever committed to celluloid. Um, and I don't mean that as a joke. Like I do find this uh, interesting to a certain, to, in, in a certain respect. So the way Robert escapes is at, he has, he has stashed away his barrister's glasses. The barrister is on his way to uh, preside over another case. And he asks them to per- delay the proceedings while he gets his glasses and then they are let out of the room. And then we cut to the courtroom that is overcrowded. We're dealing with an overcrowding issue. So, like, it, it's not not to obviously draw, like, specific allegories to today, but, like, you know, this overcrowding of a justice system, this is not just a, an issue that you can allude to today. It's, like, ongoing. And he uses that to his advantage to escape by mixing in with a crowd that's in the observance box, and then it is established that the lawyer and the other cops that were leading him in initially think he's escaped. And meanwhile, he's actually in plain sight. He then puts on the glasses and dips out the back door. Um, I, 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 it's, I mean, obviously like it's something that you, as we've discussed before about like things you could only get away with 
in a certain time period, I found it to be quite charming how he escapes because I was like, that's that's pretty neat. Like, that's that's pretty cool that you'd kind of use the overcrowding to your advantage to get to slip out the back um, in, in a way that obviously you could not you could not do that in a film today and stand on your own two feet and firmly justify that decision like nobody could. Well, do Scor- Scorsese couldn't even do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would need to be executed better today i think it i think it could be done i just i think that uh maybe i don't know i mean definitely not in like a modern court scenario there's no way to get that done but like because he's not in any sort of uh of a jumpsuit or cuffed or anything like that but i think that to be honest with you this was the this while i was watching this i was still trying to put together what the actual significance of the coat and the belt and the like, I was just, I was, I was caught in that. So I look up and he's sitting down and no one's paying attention to him anymore. And he flips on the glasses and then he escapes. And I came really close to pausing the movie and rewinding it to be like, I think I understand what just happened, but how is any of that possible? And because of be, and that was the moment that I just clicked and I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. But, I'm just going to go on with this ride. <laughs> like, but it, I don't it, need to see a clinical, uh, look at like how did he blend in with the crowd in a courtroom where he is going to be on trial for murder? It, it doesn't it, make any sense. I don't, and so I was just like, I don't need to see this again. I'll just let's keep watching and let's see what happens. So here's the thing: <laughs> I I went back a couple times to analyze it as close as I could, frame by frame, and the and the. As he's walking out with the barrister, there's a disruption, and then he kind of blends in from there and darts away, and then they kind of, like, see that they've got – there's a young, another young man in his place, and they're like, well, that's the wrong person. So, like, it's a quick cut. It's almost like it, it, it in a way because of – I don't know if this is trimmed over from – the the version I saw was the restoration that was then put on the MGM DVDs uh, that were released in the late 2000s. So – there, it's established in such a quick way that almost it's trying to fool you, like throw you off a bit, and kind of like awe you and surprise you at the at the a way he was able to escape. Um, but it is laid out like Hitchcock's not, you know, he's not lazy enough to basically just kind of wing it. Like he he does it is detailed out. But if, oh yeah, I mean, and I, I just, for me it's just sort of the the logic of it, and I'm I'm always willing to raise my suspension of disbelief to the level that a movie requires of me. Um, of course you are. I think that, We've like, seen movies in... where Rose McGowan has a machine gun leg. We are able to do anything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not being, I don't think that I'm being overly rigid here, but we're also talking about a movie that in, in the exact same movie, a cop later on in the film who has only seen a picture of Robert is able to identify him just by running into him on the street. Yeah. And so the fact that like that's possible but the police officer who's in charge of guarding the people that are being brought to trial and this particular one has is on trial for murder and it's already been stated that this that there hasn't been a murder investigation in this town for 12 years that he is able to lose sight of him in this crowd in and like has forgotten what he looks like in that amount of time was just like a like it's a bridge maybe like maybe 14 bridges too far I have I have two possible solutions that would fix this in an instant. One, we retroactively yes. make it the town of Sanford before Nicholas Angel got there, and there hadn't been a murder there in fifty years until that murder happened, 
and then 20 years later, a bunch of other ones would happen. The other one is, is that if I can retroactively put Twitter and social media into this movie, that's how the information will travel that fast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and, and keep in mind, I don't like fucking Twitter. I, didn't, I never fucking liked it. I liked Friendster. That was my thing. That was my bag. It's a shame that it didn't succeed. Um, but, um, so he does, he escapes though. And, um, uh, the, um, he, he basically, he gets a, he, he gets away by riding, running, riding on the back of Erica's car. Um, uh, and, you know, in a scene that obviously you, you see curbed in other movies, not the least of which to our modern eyes would be, you know, Marty McFly sketching on the back of a truck because he's late for school. So, you know, like, that's a fun little, you know, kind of, like, cheeky way of escaping. Like, it also kind of reminds me of silent films and the way people would kind of escape that way. Oh, and by the way... the cars back then did have... They had an entire runner board to step up into. So I think he was just sort of hanging on and had his feet up on that. Yeah, and it's and it, it, there's silent films of the air where comedians would hitch on the back of it, and I always find it a very charming image. It's one that I've 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 always tried to figure out how you could do it from a modern context, and not involve the skateboard like Marty McFly does, because <laughs> um, I'm just like ah, that just seems like it's too dangerous to try to pull that off on an independent scale. But is there a way to do this in a way that won't lead to an accident? Uh, and the answer is I don't know. Um, what I do know is before we can jump any further, though, we have to talk about Hitchcock's cameo in this movie, which comes after the escape. And yes. uh, the police are out there and everybody's, you know, asking questions, trying to figure out what's going on. And we have um, we have me and I'm there with my little camera and I'm kind of um, I'm kind of basically uh, doing a photo shoot of these detectives. But I'm also trying to make it look like I'm not doing that. <laughs> This camera's really tiny. This is like clearly one of those like personal cameras and like he's I love him in the it might be my favorite one of my favorite cameos. It's not my favorite cameo. Obviously I'm you know, I'm I'm a little bit more predilected to the ones he does later down the line, including some of the more ridiculous ones, but this one in particular is fun because he's actually there for a long ass time. He's it's not like a blink. He's there yeah. for a while. He's an active part of the scene and it's kinda cool. Um, and he's kind of hamming it up. Oh yeah, he is. You can see the range of expressions on his face. If you took still frames of the different facial expressions he makes, you could make that um, the, those things that actors make for to show their range, where it's like four quadrant board of their different expressions, and then you could just you know photo. Photo, Photoshop on there like different uniforms like one in one he's a tennis player and the other one he's a cowboy um, that yes. it's it's kind of beautiful and also the way he's moving the camera this is going to sound really cheeky and cheesy of me but like the way he was moving that camera around and whatnot I've seen this film many times but last night when I rewatched it I noticed this and I when I started going, work it, baby. You're a tiger. You're Tony the Tiger. You're great. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. Like I got, I immediately went to Austin Powers the way he's moving that camera. It was, it's, it's so weird. Like it's like it's not fake photography because that camera's so small that might be how you use that one. But I was just reminded <laughs> of the hand movement of fucking Austin Powers clearly not taking good pictures in his photo shoots in The Spy Who Shagged Me. Um, so he he escapes and uh by hitching on the back of the cars we've established the um she um 
she she is meanwhile trailed off with the police in her car while he's on the back of it. So he's already risking being caught immediately if the cops were to ever turn their heads and go, huh? Um, yeah, uh, everyone goes on the search for him. Yes, and exactly. One of the, one and, of the cops jumps in the car with her and they take off in just some direction looking for him. Yes. And as they drive along, the car runs out of gas and they have the, and you have the inspector. Um, he, he's uh, the, the, you have the police constable and a police sergeant in there. And like it, the, this scene's kind of funny because it draws an allusion to something that would happen 40 ish years later. Um, and so they, it runs out of gas. They're going to continue the pursuit. They halt a man uh, with a pig cart and demand to get in, like commandeering his vehicle, essentially. Um, and as they're getting in and they're trying to rearrange themselves around the pigs that are kept in this, in the back of this cart, um, they're complaining about the space. And the man who drives the cart says it's not supposed to hold more than 10 pigs. And, uh, you know, you could argue that you're not supposed to read into these things and whatnot, but, like, it's not supposed to hold more than 10 pigs in there, and there are now technically more than 10 pigs in it. Yeah, I'm Marshall, actually, I I'm smell looking... bacon. Do you smell bacon? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking up right now when, when cops started to become referred to as pigs. It seemed like honestly, if I'm being realistic, it's probably more more or less something that came out of the '60s and the counterculture, and um, so that it doesn't seem like it would play today. But it plays interestingly today, the way that line is presented with what we have for terminology now. Um, oh yeah, very much so. And I mean, it seems like they lean pretty heavy into it. I mean, it's like the 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 interaction with the cops and the pigs and the cart in that scene is like. Fritz the cat level on the nose. Um, <laughs> the police actually just are pigs. I mean, it, when the when the cart takes off, they literally fall back into the pin yeah. um, with them. So I imagine that it uh, it was a it was an on you know an on purpose sort of um, joke. Yeah. So as they go off in the pig cart, she starts pushing her car again, and then she notices suddenly that. Her car is much easier to push. Why? Because suddenly Robert pops his head up and goes, hello, <laughs> I'm here. And yes. they take it to the petrol station. He, they don't, she doesn't have any money for the petrol. He gives his last three shillings. But she doesn't know that yet. He just pays for it. Yeah, exactly. And so she, she then drives him to this abandoned house. And he... <laughs> He kind of, it's weird, like the banter suggests that he's playing coy with her in a Robert, Robert Donat kind of way, um, where, you know, he's just like, oh, you know, like, I know what you're doing. You're, you're leaving me here, and then you're going to pick me up tomorrow to then go to the old Tom Hat and uh, find my raincoat. Because at this point, mm -hmm. he is, she is aware of what his claim to an alibi is. So, and then she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just getting you, getting you out of my fucking car. <laughs> like, yeah. You're, you're a off. criminal. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And then he goes inside and starts slowly creeping up the staircase. And at the top, there's a homeless person who looks over the edge and sees him. Mm -hmm. And he gets to the top and, no, there's a dead body up there. And now they're trying to figure out who put... Oh, wait, no, that's number 17. Sorry. I got, <laughs> I, I got mixed up with the creepy houses that people go into. 
there's fun. I've got a number 17 illusion as we get later into this movie, but <laughs> it's not <laughs> well, where you think it's going to be. <laughs> so they, he, he stays in that barn for the night. We go back to Erica's house with her having uh, breakfast with her family and the constable. Um, we meet um, Erica's brothers. <laughs> yeah, important to note that he watches her driving away. Yes. And he sees the cops coming back in the opposite direction and they stop and talk. And then she drives on and the cops do not turn in towards the house. So she did not give him up. Yes. And a little smile creeps across his face. Yes. Which is important because in that and then that tell <laughs> it's it's the earlier equivalent of that Rudolph the Red Nose line. She thinks I'm cute. <laughs> um. So. We get we get a breakfast scene here where we learn a little bit more about, uh, to an extent, uh, Erica's family life. Zach, um, tell me we have to talk about the breakfast scene. We don't have to talk about it entirely, but I do want to no, bring just, up... Just tell me we have to talk about the breakfast scene. I mean, we can if you want. I mean, Marshall, you seem okay. to really want to talk about this breakfast scene. <laughs> Marshall, what would you like to tell us about this breakfast scene? <laughs> No, I just I wanted to be her brother who keeps getting told to do stuff and then he always answers, Okay. <laughs> That's all. You know, what's interesting about this whole family is that they are establishing something that comes further down the line of like this idea where the the women in the family are a little bit are much more capable and a much more serious mind and the men at the uh, the young men at any given dinner table circumstance or family situation are, you know, are trapped in, uh, trapped in their inability to think. <laughs> um, and the, uh, we talked about this on the shadow of a doubt episode where the, the, the young brother in that movie is essentially there to be a young boy and nothing else. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And, and here we get like five or six of these uh, characterizations and it, what I think it does for here specifically is it further emphasizes Erica's serious mind and her thoughtfulness growing up amidst this room of, you know, male brats. <laughs> so, um, and at this point she's still feeling uneasy about leaving Robert behind. So as the constable is called away on a phone call, she finds a way to kind of exit the breakfast scene. Well Right, because she ends up finding out in that scene that um, the only money he had to his name were these three shillings that he used to pay for her gas. Right, and, and she so that feels... is this moment of like, oh wow, this guy gave up. He's on the run, and his life is on the line, and he gave up the last of his money, you know, to pay for my gas. Cause I be, ran out of gas. Be um, like, wow, he gave up $300,000 worth of 2020 money <laughs> to, to pay for our gas. Cause, cause that's where gas prices are going to head eventually. I'm just assuming based on how I see them climb. But so mm -hmm. she met Max. I know. Yeah, yeah, oh God. Witness, witness me indeed. <laughs> like, um, so she, she sneaks out to go back to the house with not only the three shillings, but also a little bit of food. Um, she goes up there and it's actually a beautiful shot craning up as she goes up the stairs and kind of showing the encompassment of the set. Something that I like about the British period specifically is that there are, there are moments where the sets are very elaborate 
and shot in the black and white format that they are like it really captures the feeling of english countryside it's not Mm -hmm. it's not explicitly spooky in this particular instance like it is in other films um like you could you could argue that like even foreign correspondent which is an american film has that same aesthetic in the windmill but this in particular is just kind of like establishing like the the depths the the lower depths that robert has to go in order to clear his name and the mood the mood despite it being a comedy uh, of sorts the the mood of it is primarily kind of dreary like it's it's there's a bit of desperation in there and i th- i think it's beautifully shot in that respect it and is so she 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 goes and she finds him in the hay she tries to leave the shillings there they drop off of him when he tumbles over and then he sees that he's there she's there and then they have further banter back and forth to which you know it, to which basically she is agreeing at the very least to get him over to Tom's hat or no she doesn't actually i'm sorry i take that back she's she's thoroughly convinced that she needs to ki- she needs to give himself up um and as they go through their banter the police are uh uh are walking by again and they go and look up and go like they see movement up in the barn and they go like you don't suppose it's yeah it probably is again another ex- example of police assumption in this film which you know we're we're talking about the inefficiency of law enforcement in this film this this seems like it's an extension of the different times alfred hitchcock pokes fun at police authority because this is not uncharted territory for him he's done it in many films that we've talked about specifically psycho where he points to the intimidation of the police in this one he might be pointing towards the bumbling of police in certain matters so Mm-hmm. I, I I find it interesting how he kind of runs the gamut in different ways of portraying law enforcement in that respect. Um, in, in in Rear Window, it's the most grounded because they have to keep convincing Jimmy Stewart that you can't just break into somebody's house to take evidence. <laughs> like, um, right. So so they get away, and at this point, like she stops the car and basically tells him why she can't take him to Tom's hat and they're about to basically go back to town and they get to a fork in the road and the road is blocked to town. (laughs) So they're going to take the left turn (laughs) and they get over to Tom's hat. Um, And they're trying to indicate if she goes in to indicate where the coat might be, as the time has gone on and she has made that turn in the fork in the road, she is basically curious as to whether or not any of this is true um, or starts believing him a little bit more. Um, these these tropes of them slowly gaining each other's trust are things you see before in things like the 39 steps and then actually kind of end up getting a little bit more perfected to an extent in the movie Saboteur that Hitchcock did in 1942. So this is a theme that he kind of deals with where it's a, it's a couple trapped by circumstance that are led into um, basically learning to trust each other. So she inquires about the overcoat and the the patronage of this diner slowly starts to reveal that there was a coat that, um, that had probably been stolen because a bum came in (laughs) And uh, was wearing a new overcoat, and they thought it was impossible that he would be a- able to procure such a uh, nice coat. 
Um, this this person they are alluding to is Old Will, who's a China mender. Um, yeah, he he mends porcelain porcelain dishes. But they, what's funny about the scene is that like they're slowly giving up the information bit by bit. But as they are, they're also telling each other to shut the fuck up <laughs> because the snitches get stitches. So yeah, th- eventually all of this leads to a big old brawl inside this diner. <laughs> like, and it's yes. it's a fun scene that it's a it's a fun little fight scene. Obviously, much more experienced and well constructed than what we saw in the fight scene in number 17 where it looked like a born a born movie um so in the middle of this fight she's assured that the coat does exist and it was taken by a guy named old will um he uh a, one of the guys before he is this is the this is the guy who sacrifices the most in the movie because before he gets the living shit kicked out of him he tells him that old will stays at a boarding house 30 miles down the road and then, if you want, I'll take you there. But before he can agree to take him there, he gets dragged by another guy and goes, "Come here, you! You don't you do that!" And then we don't know what happens to that poor sacrificial lamb there. <laughs> but um, they, within that, she agrees. Hey, I, I, I'm starting to believe you a little bit more now. And then he says, "Well, I'm going to go off down the road, and you should probably be getting back." And he starts walking down the road, and Erica goes, "Motherfucker." I'm going, I'm going. And then, so the next scene we cut to is them in the car and her way to establish a motive or establish her whereabouts so that it doesn't conflict is that she's going to visit her aunt. Um, and ha- so that her aunt can confirm she was there at, on the way to this boarding house. So that's the way she's going to, so then that way her father doesn't catch on to it. Um, <laughs> And also she says, I thought we'd need this cup in case we run into um, old Will and you can have a proper introduction. And she's like, well, I don't think we'd need it now. And then just tosses the cup out to the out into the street and it slashes the tires of uh, another car oncoming. So um, clearly very inconsiderate, but, you know, whatever. They're on, they're on yes. a fucking mission. They don't have time to worry about that car. Um, and we get to. One of the best scenes in the movie in terms of a way it's constructed, not necessarily dialogue-wise. I'm, I'm talking more about what happens at the end of it, but something I'll bring up on this. We were talking about the different versions of this film and the different cuts. Mm-hmm. So among the things that were cut from this film are the blind man's buff scene from U.S. Prince. And if, oh. you, lis- and if you listen to uh, Hitchcock talking about the film with Truffaut, he explains that the issue with them removing that scene is, is that you took away a, a, a thematic element of the film um, that there, the, the thematic element of this film with the twitching eyes, with people not seeing, is that establishing that the older people in the room are not aware or refusing to be aware of the innocence and the actual circumstances surrounding them. And they're blinded by their own judgment. Hmm. And in fact, the young and the innocent are the ones who must, um, overcome that blinding. Um, obviously as we've discussed, things are on the nose in this film. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is, is that if you remove that scene from the U S print, while I don't think you lose anything as a story other than just them leaving, you do lose an interesting scene of like the reason they have to escape is this way because when the ant is blindfolded, yeah, it provides the convenient escape. 
Um, right. And, but the problem with this plan, obviously, like in terms of her initial plan to uh, get in and get out, is that it was supposed to be her um, her cousin's birthday party. <laughs> um, and basically, the the hindrance of this party leads them into being there longer than they'd hoped. At one point, Robert is going to leave a note saying, I can't wait in here any longer. But then another car approaches. Yeah, so the the whole idea is that they're driving off to go find old Will, right? And then he's concerned that her father's going to be concerned. And because he's the constable, I guess send the cops after them. And so she says, no, I've got it all figured out. We'll stop off at my aunt's. I'll call my dad. We'll be there for three minutes. And then I'll continue on. I'll make up some excuse for him. Yeah. And so they go to the aunt's house and it turns out, oh, nope, it's her cousin's birthday. So she's expected to stay longer. Yeah. And he's, Robert's left outside, but then her uncle comes home and is like, what are you doing out here? Come inside. Yeah. Come to this party. Really quickly, his uncle, her uncle is none other than Basil Radford. You may recall Basil Radford as one charters of the famous duo Charters and Caldecott from The Lady Vanishes, who would go on to have their own spinoff movie, a film that will be reviewed at some point on a supplemental episode, because I promised Corinne (laughs) we'd do that, because we have to know what happened to Charters and Caldecott. But here he's just, you know, he's just her uncle. And it leads into the, the game of Blind Man's Bluff, where they're able to sneak out. But the problem, part of the problem being is, is that the aunt has seen, um, uh, seen Robert and he gives an alias that we mentioned at the top, but uh, Marshall, give us that alias one more time. That beautiful, beautiful alias. It is Beechcroft Manning tree, Beechcroft Manning tree. Out of all the aliases that I have loved in Hitchcock movies, whether it's Huntley Haverstock and this one, this one, is just special because it's so British. It's so mm-hmm. British. You can't, you you can't get past how British that 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 alias is. It is. Well, even the aunt who's super British can't get past it. Yeah, it she's just like her that, off guard. She, she she's just like that's too British. Boys, and get the, him. <laughs> the aunt we should say is wonderfully played by Mary Clark. She's she was easily one of my favorite parts of the film. Oh, she's, she's wonderful. Really she shines she, in this. She has the she. It's not aloofness, but it's like it's it's that kind of stern. Because um, the way she's interacting with the children at the party, specifically Harold, the boy from hell, <laughs> like, <laughs> and also I think secretly Hitchcock's device to move the plot along, because there's points where the aunt wants to distract things further, and the boy goes like, no, 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 <laughs> like, <laughs> we're gonna do this, and and then I just imagine going like, yeah, that's my that's my little unknown son, plot driver Hitchcock. <laughs> like, <laughs> I put him in there specifically. I called him Harold in this movie. <laughs> he's he's a delight. Love little Harold, <laughs> but he's really going as PD pitch driver, uh, plot driver. This, this is this is what he does. Um, but they get into the game, they sneak out, and the ant, the ant calls <laughs> the constable because the and the because I, I'm trying to remember the constable is concerned, but yeah, the. He, yeah. But she basically tells him, "Hey, you know your 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 daughter was here <laughs> with a man, and the constable's kind of flabbergasted by this. But like, well, I she she tells me about everybody she's going with, and then 
she mentions the name of a person that it might have been, and then goes, but he's in, but she, and he says, but he's in India, and it's like, oh, then it couldn't have been him, um, mm-hmm. which leads to further suspicion by the constable that something's afoot, and they get as far as the train tracks, <laughs> um, and we get uh, this uh, this miniature scene, which. So this isn't unheard of for Hitchcock. We've discussed it before how the miniatures are used on stuff like number 17 that I'm coming down the line. And we've also talked about these miniature sequences in something like The Lady Vanishes, which I think because The Lady Vanishes comes out a year later, they're more slick and effective in the opening shot of that movie. Um, The only thing that makes this um, uh, particular shot a little jarring is because we end it primarily on a on a uh, exterior of the car where there are clearly two action figures there before we mm-hmm. cut to the inside of the car with them in it and her basically agreeing to stay there while he goes to the boarding house to find old will yeah and um, i did i thought it was really really weird to use a uh, a liono and a and a skeletor action figure <laughs> for they were the only one. Erica and Robert. They were the only action figures I had at the time, you ass. <laughs> we, I couldn't afford a Transformer. What do you think I made of fucking money? <laughs> the Transformer was the car. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> you, know, you know who could afford it? Orson Welles. Because he clearly did a voice for it at the end of his fucking life. I shouldn't know that because I died years before that happened. But you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um. But no, it, it's the thing like it, it's not like it's only jarring to us today because of we can tell it clearly from however uh, from whatever uh, resolution point we're watching this movie. In my case, I was able to watch it in basically 720p on a 4K TV. So it looked it, it looked fine. Like the DVD print was fine. Um, but you can tell it's a figure. I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuring audiences back in the day, even if they could tell it. They're still entranced by the shot because a shot like that wasn't really being done, especially in Britain, other than people by Hitchcock. So mm-hmm. it, it would probably their suspense might be a little bit more focused on the the shot itself and not necessarily what's contained specifically within it. Um, but it's an example of Hitchcock using uh, different techniques and stuff that do look that technically look outdated today. But like if you look at it from the perspective of like him using miniatures to establish a shot it does look beautiful like the the miniatures themselves of the different buildings and the bridge do not look and the trains do not look like too toyish or anything like they're not no i i thought the shot worked really well actually i i mean while it was going on i sort of like you know i glanced back and was like wait a second is that a is that a miniature no no no, that's not a miniature those buildings look too oh wait no i think that's a no that's not a yeah they're yeah the trains are definitely miniature oh they're the figures yeah and but i i thought it i thought it worked really well the ones that happen later in the film are not as well done as this as this opening one but but the the opening one i thought that it worked for me yeah and 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 uh, and i think it throws you off a little bit it also kind of brings you into his his realm of realism or i don't call it magical realism with hitchcock I, i kind of go he's you know he's He's it's flight of fancy for Hitchcock. This is every film that he does primarily for the most part is set in a in a in a world that's outside of true convention when it comes to like logic and like, you know, like things reasonably happening like, it, you know, it's a movie like he's aware it's a movie. He's going to make you aware it's a movie. Um, yeah. Well, also, I think that like the 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 thing that 
helps give me perspective on Hitchcock or when I'm watching a Hitchcock film is that I think that the thing that is of the utmost importance to Hitchcock as uh, as the storyteller is control. Yeah. And so he's going to do he's going to sacrifice really a lot in terms of believability or or characterization or or um uh, suspension of disbelief in order to maintain control over the production and, and the so imagery I think and the imagery the, specifically yeah right right that the the shot is is expansive enough that there probably wasn't a place on earth that had that sort of geographical setup and that looked that way that they could control in terms of lighting it to be able to see it and traffic and people and extras on the budget they were working at in the time span they were working at. So at that point, it just kind of becomes like, yeah, okay, then build a miniature and I'll do it that way. Yeah. Um, and it's a, and the only thing, that, yeah, it, yeah. So it, I think that it, it just kind of becomes an, age, uh, our, um, an issue of that, of control. You know what? You know what's interesting, though? I, I, I've, I've realized this as I've gone on through the series. And um, at the same time that I've done this, I've also really dug back into Martin Scorsese. And I rewatched Hugo not too long ago. Mm. And um, I, I, I love that movie a lot. And I remember at the time it got shit for its overuse of CGI, which obviously was done in certain respects to achieve certain shots that he wanted for the 3D tech, which, you know, that movie looks great in 3D. Um, and, you know, it's almost like you shouldn't give Martin Scorsese shit for the way the exterior of that train station looks and how he moves into it, because he's clearly taking some inspiration from Hitchcock as he's done before and will continue to do until he dies. So, because as we are fully aware, Dial M for Murder had an int was given an introduction by Mr. Scorsese, you know, ranting for a not 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 too long, but for me, not long enough about the brilliance of that movie, because I could listen to that man narrate an eight hour audio book and it would be spellbinding. Um, yeah. Well, but, I think that it's I mean, it's as far as, you know, when you're talking about if the use of effects over um shooting something live or, or or practical yeah um the i think that for for master filmmakers that line has never really um been different you know i've i've heard uh fincher talk a lot about um being really concerned about the budget of his films and and the stuff that he does and and not wanting to blow things out of proportion in terms of um budget and so but his his inclination is to always do something practical until it becomes a penny more expensive to do it practical than it would be to do it digital right which and is then another, he's like okay then do it digital yeah um which is another allusion and, to like you know we we haven't talked on it too much but fincher takes a lot from hitchcock he's actually been com compared to Hitchcock in a lot of respects in a way in the way that he constructs the film like you know like th there are times when Mar M. Night Shyamalan was getting compared to as the next Hitchcock or the next Spielberg or whatever and I think actually it applies more to people like Fincher or even Jordan Peele because of how they're constructing their films and how they're mm -hmm. constructing the moments that happen into it and like Zodiac is a great example of well, we clearly don't have the, the money to fully recreate San Francisco, how it looked in the 70s, for this overhead shot of a taxi cab driving down the route that Paul Stein took before the Zodiac shot him um, outside of um, uh, of Cherry Street. But it, uh, 
it, it's one of those instances where it's like him taking something that you've learned from the past and applying it here with the tech you have today. I think, see, and, and we've talked about CGI getting kind of like tossed under a bus and whatnot. And I am guilty of it as well because I like practical more often than not. But I'm mm-hmm. learning more over time how CGI is becoming a better tool, uh, in part thanks to you and your discussions on 3D in particular and how certain things in certain tech innovate that storytelling and can. Well, I think that's, yeah, I think that's the, the, that's the distinction for for me is is when CG is used as a band aid, it's usually bad. When it's used to take place of good storytelling, it's almost always bad. Right. Um, but when it's being used as a tool, then it's incredible. You know, I think that um, again, just going to the to the cost thing and and Fincher is you know like Fincher in his films now uses um, exclusively fake blood for wounds, uh, CGI blood. Because yeah. he's he was tired of wasting all of the time on set to to reset to redress and you know clean an actor off and then redo their hair and their makeup and everything like that just to do one more take. Yeah. And but if you go back and you look at the films that David Fincher does with blood in them, the blood is is seamless. It looks amazing. Yeah. And that's because he doesn't just say just go use stock footage of blood splatters or blood streaming and and toss it up there he says i want to spend a lot of money to make the blood look really good yeah because i'm saving money here i'm going to apply it here yeah and and that that judicious approach to um to making it work and making sure that you do a thing practical until you can't do it practical anymore and then you find a way to blend that seamlessly um digitally and yeah you know again like the the mother the, the two mothers of of the cgi uh, film universe that we live in today, Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, both did exactly that. Yeah. That any time they could do something practically, it was there, it was on set, it was practical, and the transitions and the things that they couldn't do practically were filled in with CGI, and it's beautiful and it's seamless. Yeah, and it and it and it lends into not it's its birthplace isn't with Hitchcock. Obviously, other filmmakers had done stuff in this fashion of like using something that is other that that is not clearly realistic to propel different parts of the story um there's examples that we've looked at over the course of the series whether it's certain elements of foreign correspondent and its visual effects um but rebecca has a a clear instance of it with um there's a shot outside of the west wing with mrs danvers closing the shutters of the window and it's actually a puppet they pull back and from that mm. wide shot because that was the only way it would have gotten the motion that he would have wanted and been clear on screen. Um, yeah. You know, so like th- this is not new for him. He and, and we've talked about, obviously, in the course of the series, how Hitchcock would adapt new technology for his purposes. He wouldn't just frivolously toss it around. Um, but anyway, they talk in the car. She expresses her concerns about what's going on. She doesn't want to feel unsafe. She's mm-hmm. clearly a young woman who is, you know, being thrust into a big adventure. And, and what I appreciate about it is that they, they do take into account the fact that because she is young, she is not used to this kind of adventure. And, and nor does it seem like Robert's fully comfortable with it either, but he seems like he's a little bit more knowledgeable about how rocky it can get. Um, and we we basically have him leave her there behind while he goes to the boarding house staying there the night waking up he's he goes to sleep spotting 
what he who he believes to be old Will at the bed number twenty six. And then he wakes up the next day and the occupant of the bed number twenty six is gone. And so he searches around, he kinda raves a little bit <laughs> on that he's looking for old Will the China Mender and he finds old Will the China Mender. Um played here beautifully by Edward Rigby. Um Old Will is yeah, kind of a another wonderful role, another another wonderful role well played. Yeah. And and to the point where I said that it was something that reminded me of number 17, it was obviously the fact that a uh, a hobo was going to play an important part in the conclusion of this story. <laughs> and because um, obviously if you recall number 17, who had the jewels at the end of number 17? Why our old hobo friend, of course. So yes. um uh so in this particular case um, you know, he doesn't obviously know Robert. So Robert's shaking him down going like, you know, I, I need that coat. I need that coat. You can have it back when you're, when I'm done with it, but it, it's there to clear my name. He's getting confused. Robert lets it slip that he's wanted for murder. <laughs> um, th- this was the one logic point where I shook my head the first time I saw it. And every time since going like, why'd you just yell that out loud? <laughs> like, but emotionally I get it if he's trying to get that coat and he's that desperate he's gonna let something slip it just feels a little weird at times but yeah it's a it's an unearned moment I think that and that that has to do with the characterization um, and the way that Robert is played mm-hmm. um, up until that point because I think that you know again we'll all I'll hammer this again later but i th- my my biggest uh criticism of the character of robert Tisdale is he does not care about anything through this whole film until that moment yeah um and it's so it's it's really hard to also care as the audience member if he's just like yeah i'm having a blast and i know i'm innocent so i'm going to joke about everything and not really anything's on the line for me because hmm. that's the way that my character is written and the way that i'm playing it and it just uh it, it um it ends up, you know, uh, building to this moment that is completely unearned where he does kind of freak out and lash out so and, and let's spill that he's on so trial for murder. In, in remembering the um, in remembering some of the imagery leading up to it, there is there is a justific there is a partial justification for seeing the transition. I don't know if it's strong enough to earn that moment, but hear me out. He does get antsy in the car waiting for uh, Erica. So he does, uh, he is trying to leave that note going like, I'm going to be leaving you now because I can't wait this long. So he's starting to slowly be aware of the risks that are being taken. Um, and yeah, but it's, but it's also just like, there's, there's no connection with, Erica's aunt and uncle and what what the stakes are for him like it's not like they're involved in the case or they would recognize him or anything like that and before they even got there he was willing to just walk the 30 miles yeah so why he's suddenly in a rush that because she's inside for four minutes rather than the three that she said she'd be yeah it doesn't doesn't make any sense to uh, me. again like I, again it, I don't think that it clearly wraps up that theory but i but in thinking of it like it 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 could be the film's way of trying to justify it i don't know if but i get like i said i don't think it succeeds because of the fact that obviously the outburst is so large in that film and Mm -hmm. 
we should establish at this point also that he, prior to riding up at the train tracks, they did get, um, they were pulled over by um, a cop because the cop had gotten a call from the constable to check in on her daughter, on his daughter, and that a man would be with her and to find out who the man was. So he has had a skirt with the law. So that might be, and then again, that's another one that might be putting him on edge. But Mm -hmm. it feels like it would be better if the if the him being on edge was a little bit more built up in favor of the banter back and forth for the romantic angle. So it seems like those elements, because we really want to make you like these characters, which we do like I do like these characters a lot. We do sacrifice certain details in order to get us there. I think that the power of this film ultimately relies on its charm and that in in some cases that is enough to get you by on a film and I think that this is the case in this film at least for me as a viewer because I can rewatch this film and enjoy it on a lot of levels while not having to be completely analytical obviously the shamely silhouette is dedicating to analyzing this so <laughs> obviously I'm going to have to dig deep into my pocket of shame but um but anyway it, but you're right there's not a clear through line of him truly breaking down like to fully suggest it like even the dialogue doesn't fully suggest it because he still feels a little bit more encouraged and sure of himself even when he's trying to assure Erica that he'll show that she'll be safe like there's no hesitation there um right you know like which there should be but regardless he does freak out and everybody in the boarding Drags house. Drags old Will out of the boarding house. Yes, exactly. Chucks him in the car. Yep, they get him out to the out, out out a little bit down in the town. In part of them trying to escape, they drive their car into an abandoned mine shaft to get away. And they go into the mine shaft, and then the car immediately dips into the fucking ground, and she's about to be pulled into hell. Um, yeah, I think the um the the scene outside the the apartment building in Ghostbusters, like the ground opens up. And takes the car down <laughs> on this hydraulic lift, and she's trapped in the car. But it is well photographed, like undeniably for that era, like for that kind of mine shaft tumble, like that's pretty fucking cool. Like, yeah, it's just really out of left field. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's 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 well done and it's relatively well edited. It's a little jarring in the edit, but um, it. Uh, it is just sort of like, oh, let's go in the mine. Oh, the mine's collapsing, and the car's getting lost in this sunken hole, and we're about to have, going to need Superman to fly the world around backwards to yeah. get Lois Lane out of the, the car. And and then it's like, oh, nope, then 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 we're caught back up. No. <laughs> then she's no. back being questioned, and, and that was that scene. So arguably that is another instance of Hitchcock going like, we need an exciting set piece in this or something to kind of throw in there to add further tension to their struggle, not necessarily their characters, but their struggle. This isn't the first time he's done this. Like, I mean, like, it, it's going to sound callous to say, but North by Northwest is full of this. <laughs> like, yeah. I would love, I, there's, there's the sneaking suspicion that I have that that was a set from a different film that they had the ability to use <laughs> before it got torn down because it's like, it's like literally oh let's go into the abandoned mine and then cut to another miniature of a car going into a little shaft and then you have this super elaborate crazy set and then it ends up amounting to nothing you know what and then it continues on then it's like i have a hard time believing that they were like yeah okay let's go ahead and use a fifth of the budget to construct this set for this 
well, doesn't matter scene. I do kind of believe that Hitchcock would um, insist upon that for the creation of the film if that's what he outlined in pre-production. Because I think, like, I mean, either A, he had knowledge of a set that he could use, or B, this is, you know, strictly intentional. Um, but regardless, my theory is is that he time-traveled the entire set and the crew to 1998 when Joe Johnston was filming the movie October Sky and utilized one of the coal mines in that, in that movie to get their shot. And then they came right back. You know, that, that, I think that's a sound theory. That we can all get behind. <laughs> um, well, he wouldn't have even needed to construct a time machine. He could have just jumped in the wormhole that uh, Donnie Darko uses ooh. to get with Jake Gyllenhaal, who is in October Sky. Yeah. Oh, I do love Jake Gyllenhaal. I do love him. <laughs> now he that that I mean, Brokeback Mountain is good too. I really like him in Zodiac because obviously that that movie is made for me. Um, I, you know, I yes. didn't see Stronger, but then again, nobody else did, which is kind of a shame. But I'll see it eventually. It's it's on my to do list, like many other people in this world. Um, you know, and and also, I'm very happy that he encouraged Jamie Lee Curtis to come back for the Halloween series. I was very happy about that when I heard of that in my cloud in heaven. That it, it was a magical day. You know, we all celebrated. You know, Donald Pleasance and I drank champagne till we fucking puked. Um, <laughs> um, but um, so anyway, they escaped the mine shaft. They get out there. They they they're completely all hope is lost. They get the coat. They find out that the coat doesn't have the overcoat belt. Then they are apprehended. Um, uh, the bum gets away, but it, it it at this point Erica is caught and she is being interrogated by the police about her experience and she's basically trying to compel them to be like no 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 the uh the. You can't you can't believe that this man's guilty. He's clearly innocent. So she's been yeah. won over. And Robert gets away as well. Yes, Robert gets away. Um, but um, in that in that moment, she's you know you start seeing her character turn to where she starts really truly caring for Robert for for Robert. And I'd argue that it's a better transition than most for when the heroine suddenly becomes infatuated with the person that she hasn't been able to stand up till this point. Um, so I think that what this film does from the romantic angle of that same theme in Hitchcock films that permeates is a little bit more fluid in this film than it is prior because it is a little bit more streamlined to get you to point A to point B in this relationship. Again, the problem, as we discussed, is that it forsakes a lot of elements of the suspense plot in, as a result. Um, mm -hmm. So she goes to bed thinking that all is lost. And then Robert pops up out of the window <laughs> outside her room and uh, they embrace and he reveals like they couldn't find it. They, we couldn't find anything of the overcoat belt. All we found were, uh, was a matchbox from the grand hotel um, or a stick of matches from the grand hotel. And, and so he's going to turn himself in. Yeah, exactly. But then they realize, wait a minute, the grand hotel. And we are I've never then into the Grand Hotel. We are we are brought to the Grand Hotel, and we we're, we're a, a plan is devised to find the man who is twitching his eyes. One of the things that the bum reveals about the man who gave him the coat that belonged to Robert that was then stolen is that the man who gave it to him was twitching his eyes. Now, remember when I said that twitching your eyes would be fucking important? Guess what? It's fucking important now. 
And what's yeah. more, we are treated to one of the most innovative scenes of the movie that definitely plays a part in Hitchcock's work down the line and also presents an interesting issue for us to talk about um, because of what's mm -hmm. in the scene. Um, but for the shot itself, we're in the Grand Hotel. The bum and um, uh, uh, Erica have set up are setting up their plan to look for the man with the twitching eyes. From the top of the Grand Hotel in the ballroom, the camera cranes down slowly, sifts through all the tables... Well, it starts in the lobby. Well, it starts in the lobby. Sorry, it starts in the lobby, goes down, sifts through those tables, sifts through that ballroom, and then lands on the bandstand and lands on the drummer, and then the drummer twitches his eyes at the end of the shot. Yes. So the whole time, yeah, because they devise, oh, this matchbox came from the Grand Hotel. I've never been to the Grand Hotel. Whoever stole it and gave it to Old Will must have some sort of connection with the Grand Hotel. Maybe we can get lucky and see him there. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, so we get this introduction to the to the ballroom with this wide-sweeping shot. And just to sort of take you through my journey of watching this shot mm -hmm. was just like, oh, this is neat. Oh, cool, we're going, like, because it tracks, um, it actually starts off what looks like just a dolly shot from the, from, up a, on a second level yeah, in the, the top level lobby of the, of the Grand Hotel. Yeah, the top level and of the lobby. And then you track past a wall into the ballroom. Mm -hmm. And then you start craning and pushing in past over everyone dancing and everyone seated and eating and um, in, into, the, into the band. And so as it gets about halfway there, and I'm, I'm not, granted, I'm not watching a restored um, print up on my in, my, in my theater. And I like squint and lean forward. I'm like, is that guy in blackface? Yeah. And then it keeps getting closer and I'm like, wait a second, is the whole band in blackface? And it goes forward and forward and then it's like, yes, yes, everyone is in blackface. And it keeps going in and keep going in, keeps going in into a full on close up with the drummer that is just in absolute blatant uh, blackface, sitting there drumming, staring forward. And then he blinks and I, I was just like, I know this shot was meant to reveal one thing, and it has it has a little bit of a different meaning for me right now. Right, because we just went yes. into yeah. an entire band all in blackface. Yes, and like purposefully in blackface because we've already established that the murderer is white. So it's not like blackface a la uh, Birth of a Nation, where yeah. you have white people playing black people in blackface. Yeah, these are white characters who are supposed to be white, and and uh. uh performers musicians in the film who are in blackface so yeah so what's interesting about watching this from a modern lens there is an immediate reaction that we have rightfully so because blackface wrong then wrong today um not even not even a question or a debate um and obviously as we are you know having reckonings not just not just within the recent months but also within the last couple of years we are we are i think we are learning in our own way how to dissect the imagery of the um of the way blackface is portrayed on cinema at the time um and and also we're having an interesting conversation about how it's done today <laughs> which um you know i i didn't expect we'd be fully having but like you know you know whatever we got to do i guess um but the the blackface is not used as 
Marshall said, it's not being used in the birth of a nation way of like white people playing black people for the sake of the narrative. It's the the way you describe this this from a logic standpoint ultimately is is that this is something that would have been done by by a jazz band or two of the time um that's not to excuse the time period um what is interesting is is that it is used to further distract you from distract the characters from identifying the killer what's in, because as he has been established as a white man suddenly he's uh in blackface but our indicator is that he's blinking now then the question comes up is that like is this film you know you know the, the obvious question will be like well is this film you know acting racist like gone with the wind and i don't and i truly don't think it is it's not it this is a uh, an aesthetic and a set piece that was able to be used of the era um it doesn't excuse it and what's interesting is that one of the most innovative shots in cinema history once again contains something that we find terrifying and horrifying today um mm-hmm. i don't know like but to me, like the, what's interesting about how it's portrayed is, is that like, again, as I said, it's I don't think there's any like foul intent. It's not like Hitchcock is doing that intentionally, um, but it provides in the pre-planning. It clearly provides a way for us to further be thrown off by the setting until we see the indicator of the blinking eyes. Um, but yeah, I think that it's it's. um, Yeah, it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a convenient plot contrivance to kind of say, well, I know that he's like in the band and maybe old Will wouldn't necessarily be thinking that this guy was a musician or is a part of the a part of the band. But I think that we need some some other sort of disguise wrapped into it. Oh, hey, we know that, you know, rich debutants uh, like the you know, they they this is a thing that goes on as a, as novelty. Um, is uh, um, Jim Jim Crow wearing wearing blackface, yeah, um, and that sort of thing. So I think that like there's a little bit of sort of like a a laziness in terms of the plot contrivance to it. Although, and I don't know that I would go so far as to say it's a defense of the film, but I, I it is worth noting that they have the villain in blackface, yeah, um, and so. I think that there there are plenty of good arguments about whether it it uh, it is excusable as a use uh, or that it was in use at all. Um, but being that it was being used specifically by the villain, um, at least doesn't celebrate it or put it cast it in a good light because of of who's wearing it. Right. And not, and I'll tell you, like you know, it, it 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 is not our intention when discussing this particular moment to solely focus on this because we do want to talk about the technical achievement involved in that creating that shot because there is a story behind it. Um, but in discussing the content of it, there is a lot of th- there is a there is obviously a layer to it that is not expected in 1937 to become a uh, a point of contention 80 to 90 years later, right? So mm-hmm. as we discuss it now and as we look at these things, we it, it behooves us to address it as we have and to dissect like, OK, well, what how is it being used here as opposed to in another film like Birth of a Nation? Um, you know, Spike, Spike Lee, one of my favorite filmmakers to watch, 
had pointed out about like you know we need to start providing context with within films of this nature so that you don't you obviously don't want to get rid of them but you need to show them and then provide context with it and hopefully as we've discussed with this the with dixieland jazz bands and specifically bands using blackface can be it can be construed as something of the era that's where that's where it leads me to my conclusion that it's not anything intentional by any of the filmmakers or anything as some sort of offense it is used primarily as a part of the story but it's not because it's not strictly addressing race it's kind of like an afterthought um in to a certain respect other than the fact that it is the identifier of the killer um Mm -hmm. to show the identifier of the winking eyes um and again i may not be explaining myself fully well but um I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that like I'll ask it in the form of a question, Marshall. Does it does it detract you from ever wanting to watch the movie again if you were so inclined? Um, no, but I don't I don't have that sort of connection with um with films. Interestingly enough, though, I think that actually might be worth some like some introspection for me. Is that where um different people involved in the films can totally detract from my willingness to like want to watch a movie again. Right. Um, um, but in terms of the content, um, I am, I think it is very important to expose oneself to uncomfortable things. Yeah. Um, as we discussed in March that, right, right. Like I don't, I, I did not watch Young and Innocent, and nor would I watch it again, um, knowing the use of blackface in this in in a celebratory standpoint. Like it wasn't like, ooh, yay, fun, uh, blackface. Um, it uh, it's something that was like, oh, goodness, like this is this is a this is a thing that I'm watching right now and it is a part of the plot it's woven into it and I think that it speaks to like from again from in a hindsight perspective in a hindsight perspective um especially from two people who are fans of of Alfred Hitchcock like there are plenty of positions that can be taken um to really want to look at it with a, a grain of salt or, or give um Hitchcock the benefit of the doubt um and and try to justify or um or reduce the amount of responsibility had in this sort of betrayal um like you know like i said that i did with um with the fact that it's the villain who's wearing it um i think that there's definitely um an angle that could be approached with saying that um throughout the entire film um we have been dealing with people who are a part of a middle and below in terms of uh, socioeconomic class. Yeah. That the, the highest we really get is this police chief, this constable and his family. Um, but Robert clearly isn't for money. Um, old Will clearly is not for money. We're living in this, in this, in this world that are people that are more on the side of the have nots than the haves. Yeah. And, the person that we know from the beginning of the film that has committed this murder is a have. He's a guy who had the power to um, lord over the fact that he gave this woman a career before being so angered that he was slapped that, that he killed her. 
Um, and But this is the first time that we're actually thrust into that world. And again, the Grand Hotel, I don't think is a, um, uh, a coincidental name. Um, and we do see this big grand ballroom in, um, that's being held by people of high society that are using, um, a different type of have nots than we have seen or followed throughout the film, but as a joke and as novelty. Um, so I think that there, there is a, a, a perspective that, that could be had in terms of looking at it that does sort of, um, make it an easier watch. But I think that I would imagine that that's probably giving a little bit too much uh, leniency in this particular case. I think that it 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 probably is more of like this is a thing that happened, and because it's a thing that happened, um, we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock and a bunch of um, Gaumont uh, white rich producers who did not have the perspective or take the time to have the perspective of anything other than like, yeah, why wouldn't I show this? This is a thing that happens. And look, it's super convenient because I can paint my murderer's face black and disguise him a little bit further. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's, I, I don't know. That's a really complicated answer, but that yeah. is the best I can do at this stage. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that I, I, I think that as it stands with it being a thing that is there more than likely because of the convenience of the era and, it being part of a, of a at the time societal function um again the statement wrong then wrong then wrong today but um what's interesting to note about it is that it what's interesting is that as even as a modern viewer it does feel like even though it for me when it it does take me aback but the focus is also on how the image is being how the camera is being used to indicate the killer so once the once the it's it we we're not like suddenly shown it we are slowly pushing in so we are given time to adjust to the imagery of this is what it is and right. so once we close in further on him now we are not just we're not focused so much on the blackface we are focused on like okay why are we pushing in on this one particular drummer and then we see the twitch of the eye um and so i think within that it's 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 a situation. I, I always say with films of the era, you know, it's a comfort judgment and your call to watch the film and enjoy the film or to have your opinion of it um, with with it being a subjective art form that we discuss. In terms of discussing this particular matter, I think that at the very least you need to address that it's there and talk about, well, do, what was is – this, is this part of the same discussion and debate that we are having about other films – of the era of the thirties and forties that are being, that that are being pro re properly reassessed nowadays. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't like, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't, um, I don't think that this is a sophisticated enough of a film in terms of intention, writing or execution to think that it has earned any sort of like, Oh, they were making some complicated statement. thematic statement, yeah, um, or exactly. commentary on society, or we purposefully made our villain um, in blackface so that you would associate blackface with 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 villainy, um, as opposed to black people with villainy, which is um, 
would be a rebuttal to any sort of defense in that. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't think it's a sophisticated film in, in a, that was trying to have any sort of conversation about this. I think that As again, it, I think it was more of a, more of a lazy plot contrivance than anything else. Yeah, and, and again, it, as we discussed up front, this film is very much a more light on its feet affair. So it's not going to be concerned with any significance within that imagery. And if you want to, uh, I, I will say that if you, if, you, if you want to elaborate further on Hitchcock and how he utilizes African-American actors, one to look at his lifeboat when he has Canada Lee playing a significant role in the film as one of the many people on the lifeboat. He is relegated to the position of a cook but we do not we are not given a portrayal by Canada Lee of somebody who is of inferior stature or quality. He is allowed to speak eloquently and uh, of a nature that puts him on the same level as the other seven people with him on that lifeboat. So it's not mm-hmm. um I so I would never I would never portend to assume that Hitchcock had any other uh had had any, you know, pre- predilection towards this imagery being something that he was a fan of. I think it is definitely something that he used to help further indicate how the uh how our how, how our heroes are going to be thrown off by not identifying guy right away um yeah now to move it along though to the technical element of that shot because it is a beautiful fucking shot um and one that one that is used to affect in films like rebecca and notorious to to masterful effect the setup of that took several hours and it took basically the entire day to shoot that one shot. This took the entire day to shoot that one shot with everything that's involved in it from the changing of lighting to move to the movement of it itself, to the choreography, to the blocking. We talk about directors who are masters at blocking in the modern context, like people like Spielberg. Um, It's one of those things that Spielberg is known for is his blocking. And, you know, obviously he watched enough Hitchcock to know how to block a scene for what you can do with the camera, because this this is an example of many times where Hitchcock's meticulous attention to detail pays off in stride. This particular shot is not as smooth or as masterful as Notorious, but it is such a great first stride for what he would end up doing down the line. Like it's mm-hmm. frankly remarkable that this is done in 1937 to a certain extent. It's not to say that you couldn't do it. It's amazing that it's happening in the British cinema. Um, America makes a little more sense that they would have the technology to do that. British British cinema is not still not, you know, on the same level as American cinema. So their resources are probably not at the exact same level as an MGM. So the fact that they pulled this off, took a whole day to do it, probably frustrated half the crew trying to get it done, is a testament to their ability as filmmakers, hands down. Um, oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, and it's and it's something I know you're as you as a cinematographer in the past have like you know you know how hard it is to get off any kind of form of complicated shot, and in mm-hmm. this particular case, I think you're you, 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 I don't I I imagine you can't help but looking at it regardless of the imagery we were discussing prior um, to uh, to not be like well, Jesus Christ like how is this done because like I. For me, it's for me. It's the main reason to watch this movie, even if you're not a fan of the story, because you do need to watch that. You you should watch at least the last back half of this movie and watch how he plays it out, specifically with that shot being your setup, 
because what we yeah. get in the remainder of the film is then trying to identify the killer with the blinking eyes, which as we, as the audience are made aware of is guy um, with the, with that elaborate shot. We also see that through perspective, we see that guy recognizes the hobo who has found new attire, by the way, he, <laughs> he, they found enough money to get him a new suit <laughs> for this ball. Um, and he recognizes him and he starts throwing off his music. Um, by the way, the song in that shot, um, no man can like the drummer man. I like that hmm. title. No one can like the drummer man. I like that title because no one can commit a murder like the drummer man, Marshall. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's fun. And also the music's really good in that scene too. Right? It's a nice, you know, swing era music. Um, uh, so he gets nervous. The band goes for a break and he is taking some form of medication to calm down his shaking. Um, mm -hmm. you know, which to, to show that, to show like, it's an early example of Hitchcock having a, the killer going into a psychotic motif. What's funny is, is that as he goes along in his filmography, the killers become more subdued and able to control their anxiety. Hmm. And it, and if we're talking about this point being a little bit more on the nose, this is one where the killer's a little bit more outward, and it, and it and it fits somewhat in the way you hear a radio drama where because you only have such so much amount of time, when the killer reveals himself, he gives away his entire plot or something like that. Like it, so there's a there's a shade of that, and so he comes back out from the break, and he starts messing up the music completely in order to avoid being seen by the hobo. <laughs> Um, and then, but the, but Erica and old will cannot make a clear imagery of it. They, they try to dance and they can't, still can't identify him primarily because guy is hiding himself wherever he can messing up the music. The band leader's going, what the fuck, man? Why, why are you messing up my, why, why are you messing up my jam? Um, yeah. And he's get, oh, I was going to say, yeah, he's, he's getting so nervous. The pills are not working and he's yeah. losing his rhythm and keeps messing up and, um, is, a. Uh, sort of having a bit of an episode yeah which which i think really lends to like it's weird that because we haven't had this character for the majority of the movie it's almost like we have to play catch up with his interpretation <laughs> um mm -hmm. and, and also like his struggle or like any anxiety he's been having so we're basically being introduced to the breaking point for him um but he as erica and old will leave essentially and it's also revealed in an outside shot that Robert's just willing to give himself up because they can't make any clear identifier of what's going on. Um, the drummer has a full-on fucking panic attack mm -hmm. on the on the on the bandstand in a in what I'd argue is actually very um, uh, restrained for the air. Like he faints. Like he flat out faints. Yeah, he and collapses. It, and the str mm -hmm. and the struggle to get him from one point from point A to point B is very realistic for its time. Like it's not, it, it it's not treated like he's like going into hysterics like an over the top Hollywood actor. So much as like he he has his different form of panic attack. He doesn't go into that over the topness until the very end of his involvement in this movie, yeah. um, which as 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 the police are taking Robert and you know, taking Erica and Erica's following with them. She notices that there's a commotion going on, um, with the drummer. Um, the inspector that she dealt with before in trying to revive Robert 
basically uh, says like, well, you, you know, remember the last time you played nursemaid, look what happened. Um, and she, you know, points to the fact that he's having no compassion whatsoever for a human being. And he, she runs into the ballroom. She goes in there and she sees, and the man is blinking, blinking, blinking. Um, and she, uh, calls in old will and she has them remove the blackface to reveal that it's Gus or to, to reveal that it's guy. Sorry. What did mm-hmm. I call him Gus? Um, and, uh, she then interrogates him. What did you do with the overcoat belt? And, she, and he just says, I fucking strangled her. <laughs> like, yeah, he didn't say that exact Batman, language. But... 1950s Batman character. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, that's, the, that's the point where the characterization does break into, into technically over-the-top dramatic acting. But, be, but given the journey we've been on, I buy it. <laughs> like, I'm, not, like, I'm sold on any amount of over-the-topness they're going to do because they've already kind of stretched their boundaries on the film. And again, it's of the era. It's not going to be perfect. They're obviously not going to get a clinical breakdown of somebody, you know, you know, confessing to a murder. You know, if we're going to talk about Hitchcock's particular involvement in this, the most responsible example of it is technically Psycho at the very end when he's um, uh, being uh, comforted by the blanket when he's talking inside his head by, as mother. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to our conclusion of the film. Um, uh, and, yeah. you know, Erica then uh, says that he thinks he should invite Robert over for dinner. <laughs> the end. The yeah. end. Hey, Dad, can we invite Robert over for dinner, please? But 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 he was technically almost a murderer. I, yeah, but he's innocent, and I'm young. <laughs> Yeah. Remember when he ran away from the courthouse and was a fugitive from the law? Yeah, exactly. And whether or not he murdered it, that okay. was still breaking the law. Okay. Can we have him over for dinner, please? Hey, now, Marshall, I'll, 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 if we're going to get too technical on this, just remember what Harrison Ford had to do to let people know that he did not kill his wife. Um, and you can also remember when Tommy Lee Jones said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I do yeah, want to watch. I do want to watch the Fugitive again. That is a great fucking movie. <laughs> I still have never seen award-winning U- line right there, dude. I've still not. I don't care. Yeah, I, I've still not seen U.S. Marshals, the the sequel to that <laughs> supposed sequel to that character, uh, and I don't know if I need to. Um, yeah, neither have I. Um, neither it, have I. It's fun. Ryan says it's fun because Robert Downey Jr. is in it for a minute. <laughs> oh, fun. Um, uh, early Robert Downey Jr. before he cleaned himself up. Um, but so. Um, this film comes out and it's, and it gets, you know, pretty, you know, moderately well, moderate, good reviews. Um, Variety called it a pleasing artless vehicle for Nova Pillbaum, who was charming in her role and conclu- and the review concludes, if the pick is not Hitchcock's best effort, it is by no means unworthy of him. Um, and the New York times called it a crisply paced, excellently performed film. Um, and, uh, the New Yorker, wrote though in a contrast that is rather exacerbating and disappointing to me it begins with a smart murder but wanders off through the english rural landscape in a fashion so lacking in sound common sense like we we like in our mystery or like to or, or like to feel there is anyhow and that is and the interest just fades away so from a modern perspective this film has a hundred percent approval on rotten tomatoes um and the primary of that, you know, 
arguably is also retroactive reviews where people are, you know, analyzing it for this website. And in yeah, fact, I'm the only go open an account and change that. Right. <laughs> oh, you're the one. You're the one who had to give Ladybird that one that one rotten, didn't you? You, you jerk. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but no, um, no. But young, it, it's only 18 reviews and whatnot. But like the the general the general feel that I get out of Young and Innocent's um, response today is not only that it is a lighthearted affair that's entertaining enough to watch. But the the sequence that we discussed near the end, where that identifying of the killer uh, is masterfully shot, is a is a reason why people go back to it as an example of Hitchcock's style and technique. Um, as a whole film, as I said up top, we don't discuss this film much beyond that one shot, and we just discussed it for two hours and change. So yeah. we are. Well, I think. Yeah, I think that that's because I don't think the film supports the shot. Um, I I mean I um, my my overall takeaways from the film uh, I think um, Mary Claire does an amazing job as Erica's aunt. Uh, Edward Rigby is delightful as Old Will. Um, there's something just like super super warm about Percy Marmont's face, like even though he's playing the the constable and the guy who's after. Robert, um, I, there's just something really warm about his portrayal of that character that I, that I quite like. Um, but, uh, Nova Pilbum is just amazing. She does such a, such a good job in this film. And it's really sad that, that, uh, she and Hitch did not continue to work together. I know that she was up, she was in the running for Rebecca for the lead in Rebecca. Um, and due to look, sounds like several circumstances, including, her like losing her contract with Galmont when it went under. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I don't know she couldn't make the crossover or something like that, but I, I really, really, really enjoyed her portrayal of Erica. She was a smart character, uh, a headstrong character, and she was just really fun to watch kind of experience the things going on in this film. And it's interesting that this film comes as a bit of a wrap up to the discussion of women characters in Hitchcock films. Um, obviously, from the from the very beginning of this show, we have talked about in f different forms or fashions and different guests about various different female characters in Hitchcock movies. And the general consensus has been that he is never actively relegating them to the side. In terms of his how he's representing them is, you know, the argument is like, you know, it's of its time. How was he expected to go above and beyond anything that he was already doing, which arguably he does more for his female characters than most of his counterparts of the era. Um, unless you're dealing with somebody like George Cukor, who's a little bit more in touch with that side. Um, you know, obviously you're not going to get that representation explicitly in a John Huston movie because that, that's not John Huston's bag. Um, uh, no, it's not. But, you know, I think that if we're rounding it out with Nova Pillbaum at the very end, starting off at a point with being just the kidnapped kid in uh, Man Who Knew Too Much, she grows into one of the one of the most memorable characters in a Hitchcock movie because of how much time she is given, how much attention is paid to paid to her in terms of a portrayal on screen, and how much time we allow are allowed to sit with her feelings and her expressions. 
Um, the, some of the best moments in this movie with her character are when she's not saying anything. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing the looks on her face and how she's communicating that to the different characters around her, whether it's Robert, whether it's her father, whether it's old Will, um, even if it's even down to Guy at the end. Um, you know, like she, you know, she gives her own reactions. Obviously, she's saying dialogue, but like in between that, you can see different parts of that. Um, so I think that there is something to be said ultimately in terms of the legacy of Hitchcock's representation on women. Obviously, because it's we're talking about Golden Age Hollywood. Unfortunately, nothing's going to be perfect about this. Um, however, it is arguable that amongst the directors that we have discussed, he is has a better track record with it than others. And we talked about a few episodes back about uh, a, an argue, like a, a more than arguable misstep in it with Marnie. Um, but it's weird that that is like one major misstep out of otherwise probably close to 30 to 40 good examples of where it gets it right. Yeah. And I don't, honestly, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would call Marnie a misstep. I think that, uh, I think that I don't think that Hitchcock was aware of the power of the story that he was telling and what it was going to do. I think that, that Hitchcock is clearly someone who is um, fascinated by the female experience. Um, and I think that he has a certain amount of reverence for women. Um, and obviously that's complicated um, yeah. with, in his legacy and the way that he treats actresses as opposed to women as characters <laughs> is, is often in contrast. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's necessarily a factor of the time that it was made in because just, you know, I just looked up, I wanted to see when um, the Scarlet Letter was written and it was published in 1890, I think. Um, and that is a film that is all about the female experience, has a female protagonist, um, and is about how wrong society is and how wrong it views, um, women and and their roles and, and things like that. So I don't think that it is quite an appropriate defense, um, to say that, oh, well, there, there weren't strong female leads, um, in, um, in pop culture or in, in popular storytelling or anything like that. And granted movie making is, as different and the business of film is definitely a different beast than publishing companies and, and books. So, uh, you know, un- understood there. But I think that the thing that in, especially the films that, that we've looked at for these podcasts that, um, just always strike me as interesting. I think at the, at the, at the very least is, Hitchcock's unwillingness to commit to these strong female characters um, and in, in his unwillingness to lead into them or lean into them rather. Sorry. Um, Cause I agree with you in terms of, of um, not only the, the character of Erica in this, but also the portrayal by Nova Pilbum is amazing. And, um, but she should have been the main character and she wasn't. Um, but I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, 
helps me to do when I'm walking away from a film um, is I, I sort of play this game in my head and I call it fix it or franchise it. And it's a challenge to me as a, as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a producer to say, if there's something wrong with it, what would I have done from a producerial standpoint um, to fix it? And if I really liked it, then knowing that this movie exists in, in the, you know, the freaking crazy machine that is Hollywood, how would I franchise it? How would I turn it into a franchise? And, and oftentimes that's like, how do you, how do you do that without ruining a really good film? Yeah. Um, but with this, I think that, so, so for me, my fixes to this film is right off the bat, Eric is the main character and we start with her and I want her to be, um, really not respected by her family and her father in particular. I think she looks up to him. Um, maybe has a little bit of a, you know, of a, of a wild detective hair in her. Um, but is relegated to coffee girl around the office. Um, and, and that, that's where you start. And then you cut to that amazing shot of the arm going through the waves in the ocean and a body washes up on shore. And then you cut to two women walking along the beach and they look across the shore and there's a guy standing over this body and he runs off. Yeah. And, and that's our entrance into the film. I think that the, 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 the biggest things that hurt this film are one where it begins um, because we know the entire film that Robert is innocent and we need to not know that in order to care about anything. Um, and um, because she's, we're watching this character who depending on which title you're watching is, should be, is kind of set up to be the main character. We're watching her learning to trust Robert. But as an audience, we already know that he's innocent. So we're just waiting for her to catch up with us, and that's really boring. It's not engaging. It's not driving. And then also, just from a characterization standpoint, which I touched on this earlier, is he could care less about any of it. And and I think that if if we're watching the film from a standpoint of we're either watching... A, everything that he's saying is we're watching a guy trying to clear his name, but in the process of clearing his name, he's getting further and further and further away from the township that's that's chasing him. And so it's like, is he just lying to her the whole time? And is he just trying to get away? And to have some sort of tension into it, because um, the the dialogue is written so lighthearted in this film, and there are there are, like weird set gags with the water fountain getting splashed in the face and like everything dialogue and atmosphere is lighthearted. But we're talking about a woman who has died and a guy being put on trial for murder. And I do not feel the stakes of that through like 95% of the film. And so those are the big things that I think would cause a major shift in that. And that would require a thing that I think would make this movie so much better, which is, shoving the character of Erica directly into that protagonist role and making her not only the, the, the protagonist, but also the main character. Yeah. So, and so I, I, I agree with you on, on the level, as I've discussed earlier about if we're analyzing and breaking this down, there, there is, there is a POV situation, which Hitchcock does on a lot of his films when it comes to certain stories that he's done. Um, and we've talked about in within those films. I mean, and the the clearest example I think would be Rear Window, um, in terms of like your ultimate POV character because that's literally the fucking Murray. But mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a part of it 
in terms of this film, if we were to really just singularly focus ourselves in her POV, it would extend beyond this thing that I'm going to read to you here in a second. Um, but I would wrap up and say, like, it's it's interesting. It's 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 almost like a Hitchcock premise that you'd want to try to remake um, with that in mind. Um, I'm not an advocate necessarily for remakes when they're not necessary. However, I'm also aware that this industry has produced great remakes because the Maltese Falcon is one of them. That re The Maltese Falcon is the third time they tried to make that fucking story happen. Um, and if you were going to remake something of Hitchcock's, you know, obviously they've done this with Rear Window a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And they did it with Psycho. And um, we all know how that turned out. Um, and But I think like if you were going to like genuinely take a a plot or a story that he had done and you were going to shift anything around, this might be a good one to do it. Because you could feasibly tell the same story with the same impact, but just shift your character focus there. Shift, shift who story we're telling. Make it about... I would rather focus more on the innocence or the young part than the innocence part in that respect. Yeah. If we're going to go by the title and there's something that I want to read off of the criterion website criterion, by the way, has not put this out on a Blu-ray yet. And I wish they'd correct that by, you know, doing it. Um, but there's an article here from 1988 um, by one Mark Fleischman. And in the article, it says, at the beginning of it, it says, In Young and Innocent, Alfred Hitchcock uses all the signs in his vo visual vocabulary to tell one of his favorite stories, Fugitive Hero Unjustly Accused of Murder. Yet this is also a story of youth and innocence triumphant, a light entertainment, a souffle made by a master chef. It's nestled between the doom-laden sabotage and the spy scenario of The Lady Vanishes like a water pistol in a draw drawer full of handguns. And I think that is a very apt observation of the film, is that it, you are sticking this in between specifically Sabotage and The Lady Vanishes, two of which Sabotage has a bunch of heft to it. It also obviously has my worst mistake. But the, and the, on the other hand, you have The Lady Vanishes, which is not only a heavier mystery with espionage in it, but it is also a call to... Uh, a call a call warning to fucking Nazis are coming. So this in the middle feels weird uh, in terms of a trajectory. And yet, if you look at it as just like Hitchcock light in the way that you can look at to catch a thief, I think from, from my vantage point, you're going to find yourself enjoying this film a lot, which I do and continue to do it. When we break down the plot, obviously that's when we have the discussions that we had so masterfully here today with Marshall is because. Yeah. We... And I, like, I, I have not seen to catch a thief. So I, I'm, I may be speaking out of turn here, but just, well, we all know why you haven't watched the... it yet. <laughs> yeah. Paramount, get your shit together. Um, I wanted you to let you, I wanted to let you get that out there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, it, um, yeah, is that I'm, I'm just going off of the title here, but, to, it's to catch a thief, not to catch a murderer, and 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 I I do not have any problem with a lighthearted approach to high stakes, but um, if the main character 
slash protagonist, which again, there's a protagonist problem here, so it's a little up in the air. But if the main character and the protagonist does not feel that they are under any particularly high stakes and do not care about um, the plot, I mean, the plot is to find this coat and he seems largely uninterested in it. Um, and um, that is that hurts the film for me. It keeps me from being one invested in the plot and invested in the characters, but also it keeps me from, from being able to have like a good time in the lightheartedness of it because it's just sort of like an annoyance to me. It's like, well, if they don't care about this, then why should I? And I, and it, uh, it was a really uneven watch for me. I'll be honest. Like, I I think that, uh, um, overall I feel like these, these two things contrasting both the tone and then the actual like plot make this film like really innocuous because they cancel each other out. It, it's it, and it, in a weird way, you've kind of explained why I still enjoy watching it is because it is so quote unquote innocuous. Um, because I because it is one that it's a it's a slick eighty three minutes. I can pop it on right quick before I go to bed and get a Hitchcock mystery in me, um, if I so choose. Is it the one that I go back to the most though? No, absolutely not. Obviously, there's a a film that we discussed with with your first time on this show that I go back to the most. Um, but um, something you brought up made me realize too, if the MacGuffin in this film being as prevalent and on the nose as it is and, and also overrepresented in the film. It almost feels like it's trying to compensate for the fact that the character of Robert as written doesn't care about the MacGuffin as much as he should. Cause the function of the MacGuffin ultimately needs to be that the characters care a lot about it. We don't have to know what it means or how it's important. We just know that the characters want it. And so therefore we, as the audience care about the characters because of they them caring about the MacGuffin. Yeah, and this is the anti-MacGuffin. Because yeah, it, we know exactly what it is and we know exactly what it means, uh, but the characters don't care about it. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and what's interesting is, is that it, it's, it's a MacGuffin situation where it doesn't mean anything to the plot, but it treads very closely to that. And that works opposite of its intention. Um which it's interesting that we can end it on the MacGuffin discussion too, because it's a, it's a theme that you, it, it, it's MacGuffin's a word that you can throw into Hitchcock's vocabulary easily because of how it's represented in some of these masterpieces. And we're talking about a film that while fun does come close to breaking his rules more often than not. It's interesting yeah. how the film does kind of is lax on his rules initially of, planning the film and i wonder if part of that is because he was becoming rather bored with it in the middle of actual production well i think that it's i i think it's a it might be a little bit of a chicken egg conundrum but i i would imagine that if he didn't see the issues that i'm bringing up in pre-production that in the course of making the film that's probably something that he absolutely recognized and so i can totally see that causing him to sort of throw his hands up in the air and be like, well, whatever, I have it all planned out anyway. Um, but now I don't really care about the movie anymore because it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, like if you, if you go back and you watch it, um, or can hunt down the screenplay, take a look at how much exposition and what we learn about is important and what characters are going to do and what their plans are 
only through dialogue. Yeah. Which and it again, is such a told film, which is... Um, antithetical to Hitchcock's pure cinema. Exactly. And it's also, it's just, it's problematic for a, a medium of storytelling that is, is visually based. Um, that, I mean, even just like, like going to the ant's house doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely stupid. So, um, is, so is this because, the Kevin Smith of Hitchcock movies? Mm, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, that, that Kevin is not, Smith that knows is, how to make it work. Is yeah. is this, the thing. This is not a this is not a dig. It's just I just but I thought of that and I'm like, hmm. Like, um, but you're but right. It, but you it know? gets in its way because I mean, like, if you just like if you're following the logic of the plot, I'm worried about your dad wondering where you are. So what? So he calls out and he puts an alert. He doesn't know where you're going. He doesn't know how far you are. He has no way of tracking you. So you're gonna, we're going to randomly detour to the ant's house so that you can call him so that he will then know the vicinity of where you are. And then that doesn't even work. And it turns out the dad's worried about her and calls the cops on him anyway. So if they hadn't have gone to the ant's house, he would have worried about them, but he now wouldn't have known where they are. And if they're looking for a guy with the raincoat because they want to prove that it still has the belt and then they find someone with the raincoat but not the belt who is a hobo why do they not suspect old will like oh no some guy gave this to me and he blinks a lot yeah like it's just the the because we're but we're told will is told will tells us oh no some other guy did this and the only reason that we go along with it as an audience is because of that opening scene is because and, we know that he's not the murderer, which and, again, and, reduces the stakes and reduces like the suspense and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's not a very well constructed film. And, and hence why, and, and hence back to the beginning of our film is that this film is light on suspense where there is suspense to me primarily lies in the climax. And it's, and it's the, What's interesting about that amazing shot in the film is that it provides the 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 most elaborate amount of suspense setup possible for a suspense sequence that is not as suspenseful as other films he's done. Right. But again, the problem is and I'll just I'm going to just I'll I'll speed through this, but I'll just read off the first few sentences from the Wikipedia plot on this film. On a stormy night at a retreat of the English coast, Christine Clay, a successful actress, argues passionately with her jealous ex-husband. Not accepting her Reno divorce is valid, he accuses her of having an affair. Finally, she slaps him and he leaves the room. While they had been arguing, his eyes twitch violently. They continue to do so. When, once outside, he turns angrily to look at the closed door behind him. The next morning, Robert Tisdale happens to be walking along a seedside when Christine's dead body washes ashore. What part of that says lighthearted romantic romp? Like he's the story he's telling is a suspense story and there is not a lot of suspense in it. And and that is an issue. Because it I because I think it his attention diverts to the romantic subplot. And I think that part of it is as we discussed with adapting that novel the way they did, um, one of the detriments is that in order to expand out those two characters that are only in a third of the novel that's what you use from a logic sense as filler. The problem is, is that it detriments the other ends of it. As I said before, the problem, 
the the problem on this film's logic level is is that the romantic subplot dampens down all the suspense we try to set up mm -hmm. and to the point where the romance is more important than the suspense the 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 moment where it comes closest to breaking that is the sequence in the grand hotel but then it also falls it crumbles a bit under the lighthearted approach by the by the characters in the story to what is otherwise a scene of a guilty man breaking down in front of them. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. what's interesting about that shot when he's still when or not the shot, but uh, the sequence when he's in the bandstand um, and he's, you know, making his distractions to not be seen. It, sh it it comes off not as, you know, comedic, but like it doesn't come off as serious as I think it could. And then that's, that's where I I feel like the film's trying to like meld the two a little unsuccessfully. Well, let's um, see. It's so interesting to me that that because my read on that scene is not that he's trying not to be seen; it's that he's like he's losing control of his body out of nervousness. Like oh. I, I do not see that as an intentional distraction. I think he's trying to he's just trying to play it cool and just trying to keep rhythm, and he's like freaking out and just like keeps doing that, and then he turns away, and that's why he goes to the xylophone. It's because he's like, I'm calling a lot of attention to myself. I need to turn my back. Yeah. Um, so that's that's part of it. The one, the indicator, the visual indicator that tells me he's trying to avoid being seen is because there is a shot where he recognizes old Will and imagines him in his bum clothing before it dissolves back to him in the tuxedo. And right, and I just figured that, like, exacerbated the panic. Yeah, well, it definitely does. When the shot, when he sees them getting up to dance... The edit suggests that he is turning at the moment when he thinks that they're going to get a good view of him. Mm. Um, so in a sense, I think we're both right because he is losing control and he is losing, losing his ability to function because the band leader who is, you know, rightfully pissed off that his musicians are fucking up his music is turning and going, what the fuck, bro? Like, you know, it's it's jazz right now and you're 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 even being too improvisational for jazz <laughs> like so that that to me kind of again it, it lends into the whole thing of like as we've gone into this discussion to discuss the logic of this film you know obviously it it you know it it you go into 500 different directions with it i guess what i would ask as part of a wrap up with how we've elaborated it and expanded on it is in spite of all that, obviously, you know, we've talked about like, which ones would you pick up and would you not pick up again? Is there something that you find good to take away from this film, um, from a modern lens? I'd say even beyond the, the, the crane shot that we discussed. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the, uh, again, the crane shot, I think, is really interesting to look at to see. I mean, the language I used before was the film doesn't support the crane shot because I, I've already, I've, I already know that the man who blinks is the murderer and that he exists. Right. And that entire crane shot is constructed in a way that is like, look, everything you've been hearing this entire time is true and here is where that person is. And it's the, but I already know it's true. All it's doing is revealing, oh, look, he's right here. And and it, it would be so much more powerful with the film that supported the mystery and supported the suspense 
and had it up in the air about whether or not Robert's telling the truth or whether or not old Will is telling the truth. Yeah. Um, so from, it's, it's just interesting to see like where uh, an elaborate shot or an amazing effect can't carry a film that it needs, it needs to fit the film that you're telling and it needs to enhance the storytelling and be a tool of the storytelling. Um, as opposed to be put into a place to like earn you back a lot of stuff that you, that wasn't established earlier. Um, but yeah, but I, I mean, to answer your, your answer, your first question, you know, I, I think that this is, um, it's a well cast film. I mean, I think that like, again, Nova Pilbaum is incredible in this. She's really, um, she's just really magnetizing to watch. She really holds the character well and, and holds her place in this family and society and plot really, really well. And then just like the bit parts. I think that that's one of the things that I, I don't know that a lot has been written on. Um, or if it has, I'd love to read it about Hitchcock's ability to choose, um, tertiary roles really, really well. Um, but there's a part of him that draws from his stock, the stock characters that he's allowed access to. It becomes more systematic in the American period. Um, it, or, or in late, it, I, I, get, I should rephrase that because it's not system. It's, it's systematic throughout, but it becomes more consistent in the latter half, half of the British period into the beginning of the American period. Uh, primarily because in the American period, while there are a few that come over from the British period into his stock players, there's also a lot that he's drawing from the uh, British actors who are already in America or American actors that he finds that he likes reusing in these small little roles, not the least of which would be like Norman Lloyd or Hume Cronin uh, or Jessica Tandy. So I think that his ability to it would extend to something that uh, we've talked about before, which is just like, you know, if Hitchcock... It's like any director. If if a, if a director likes you, they will bring you back onto another project if they have the right role for you. Um, it's it's why you know it's why Kevin Smith uses the same people that he uses because he likes working with them and he can find other roles for them or write them specifically for those guys. Or uh, Quentin Tarantino definitely. Um, you know Robert Rodriguez does it too. Like Robert Rodriguez has put Jeff Fahey back on the map in how many ways? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he made him a he made him a robot cowboy in Alita. That's how much he'll reuse him, and yeah. uh, and so like I think with with uh, his ability to do that, I think it is definitely a testament to where he recognizes who's fun to have aboard and who's not. He does it so much with Hume Cronin that he brings Hume Cronin on to do adaptations of the scripts that he's later going to have done for the films. He does the adaptation for Rope and Under Capricorn, so he's mm -hmm. not a stranger to, you know, finding people that he works well with. Norman Lloyd, who fell off of the Statue of Liberty and Saboteur, goes on to produce and co-run Alfred Hitchcock Presents with Joan Harrison. Hitchcock never um, forgot who would be good for what particular situation. The only crime he ever did was only using Nigel Bruce twice in movies. He should have used him more because Nigel Bruce is awesome. Um, and I say that because Sherlock Holmes movies are great, but, <laughs> um, but once again, Marshall, thank you for coming down and, uh, chatting with me. And by saying coming down, I mean, recording with me over the Skype zoom internet sphere. I understand that it's better, obviously, when we can be in the room together, we haven't been able to be in the room together since February when we did dial in for murder. 
but you've been an, an indelible part of this show. You have contributed so much more than I could have ever hoped and dreamed to providing insight on Hitchcock and how we view these these classic films of today. Um, as with every guest, you have provided an invaluable asset to the show, and I'm happy that I was able to have you back to provide that invaluable insight five times. Um, Zach, thank you so much. I mean, yeah. this this kind of stuff, it just it absolutely gives me life. Um, films are my literature, and uh, I love diving into them and tearing them apart and putting them back together again. And um, and what you are doing and have done with this podcast is absolutely incredible. Like, I think that uh, I know that that you have a lot of concern about tackling um, the subject of Hitchcock, which has been you know written about and talked about and explored and movies made about um, on and on and on. But I think that there's as I think that we have learned and I definitely have learned in listening to to the episodes there's always something new to be to be gathered from it and especially because you're a filmmaker um because I'm a filmmaker and I know a lot of the guests that you have on are filmmakers is that it's um there's always something to to learn and and to be inspired by from a fellow craftsperson from a person who without the landscape and the the vocabulary of film would be completely different um, and so it's, it's fun to kind of go back in. And I think that I know that, um, I've been particularly harsh on, on several of Hitchcock's titles, but I, I, I think that I do that out of, out of love and reverence because it is really, I think it's important to take a look at something like Young and Innocent or Topaz and say, here are the kernels that, of, that are there that are really engaging and like really mm -hmm. interesting. Like there's something there. But yep. man, it doesn't work. And so why doesn't it work? Because mm -hmm. because being able to approach um, new works and stuff that I'm working on or that other people are looking on and saying, let me just not learn how to set up suspense with the bomb under the table from Hitchcock. And let me just not learn how to weave, um, you know, really wry black humor into uh, a really dark film. And let me not just learn how to set up an amazing suspense um, or, a, you know, murder stab sequence in a shower, but let me learn like what not to do. Let me see when the, the master of so much of this stuff really, really, really just 100% missed the mark and got it wrong. And I can learn from that as well. And so just what you're doing with this whole podcast is just so valuable. And, and I, I can't tell you how like just truly honored I am to have been any part of it, let alone five yeah, and and now granted, I don't have a five timers jacket to give you like SNL because I don't have Lorne Michaels money. Um, yeah, you know, like it, it's interesting. Like the majority of the films we have talked about together on these five episodes, um, I'm for the most part, you know, I'm it, it. It's no secret that I'm a much more forgiving film goer, I guess, when it comes to this. Ultimately, because I'm not. There's a part of me that understands where my ability to shut off certain parts of my brain are. Um, and, and I know you have it too, obviously, um, as we analyze, obviously we discuss the, the, the problems that we find, but we also talk about the things we love in it. And that's always a give and take in the compliment sandwich of any subjective art form. The, the, the key takeaway that I've had with the discussions that we've had, uh, the psycho discussion with standing is that we've talked about a lot of films that have been under discussed or overlooked and how that plays a part in a larger legacy. And I think it was one of the key things to talk about because Hitchcock is more than just his successes. Um, 
you know, and I've and, and and part of it extended out into Marnie and talking about like, okay, this is an artful film, an uncomfortable artful film at that. So where is it working and where is it not working? Um, and then similarly with something like Under Capricorn, which Ryan and I talked about, you know, from a viewership point of view, where Ryan's not a filmmaker, but Ryan, you know, is intuitively understanding what's drawing him in and what's not. And so, and, and or when it comes to Brad talking about The Wrong Man, and um, I confess to talk about like, okay, like these films were not as lauded or oversold to us. What is our takeaway on them today? If I'm showing it to you, having no real context for the, these films outside of Hitchcock directed them. Um, and so within that, what we've been able to do, and I think even with The Young and Innocent, where I think we're, you and I are kind of at a Topaz-esque stalemate on it, where you know where our feelings are because i would rewatch this film endlessly in spite of how um inconsequential it is to the larger thematic legacy what's interesting is that it's an interesting starter pack for hitchcock i think you could show somebody young and innocent and give them an example of his motifs in a way that doesn't invest like two hours of your time like it's something that you could sit down in a film school class and show them like these are the high points. And then you can also talk about where the low points are in the same way. In a way, it's got the measurements of both things we've discussed on this show, whether it's the highs of psychos or the lows of topaz. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause it contains both. Um, and with that, you know, as a, as I said before, but I'll say again, thank you for taking the time to do this. If I were to count up how many hours you talked on the show, <laughs> it would fill two audiobooks on audible for fourteen forty nine a month. So, you know, yeah, Audible, you want to sponsor this show, I'm fucking available. Um, I just want a free Audible account. I don't care about money. Um, but so, but thank you again to to sitting down and discussing this. And we aren't going to be done with you yet um, because I, I'll announce it here on this particular program. The, the show, as it uh, ends on the Hitchcock discussion, will be retransformed of sorts into a banner called Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Uh, that's R E V U E. Um, and we will be dedicated to talking about filmmakers of the golden age past, uh, film stars of the golden age past in this same conversational format that we have been discussing. We'll also work towards getting some commentaries and mini episodes out there, but the key thing will always be the main subject. And I'll announce it here. The main subjects for this, uh, upcoming series are going to be two subjects back to back. I won't tell you their names yet because I want to save that for the final episode. Um, although I'll tell you off, Mike Marshall, because I need to get you ready. Um, but uh, but suffice it to say, this has been a, a very big joy in my life, and I want to find a way to continue it, even though we may go off the air for uh, for a couple months while I get everything gathered on how to fully execute this. Um, but on the next episode of The Shamley Silhouette, um, I believe we will be talking to uh, a, an accomplished filmmaker and writer who will be here to talk with us about none other than Alma Rebel. Um, the Hitchcock touch had four hands and two of them were Almas. And it's time that she got her fucking due. Um, so Amen. The Hitchcock, ta- the Hitchcock impression may come and go in that episode, but we're primarily going to stick to talking about the glory that was Alma Rebel. 
Um, but until next time, good night. When it comes to doing tricks with a pair of hickory sticks, I'm right here to tell you, sister, no one can like the drummer man. Every man who plays in the band is wonderful, too. I've got to give credit where credit is due. But when it comes to make that music pop, make you give it all it's got, I'm right here to tell you, mister, no one can like the drummer man. 